Here we go. Four, three, two. Henry Rollins, ladies and gentlemen. How are you, fella? I'm better now, being here with you. I'm better now that you're here. <laughs> we were just talking about a show that you got, you and Ted Nugent, apparently. Someone, someone did you pitch it? Who pitched the show? Um, it was an idea that uh, my manager, Heidi, and I came up with, well, mostly Heidi. It was like, it was called basically Henry and. Uh, you put me and someone I might have some disagreements with or a few agreements with, and we just go somewhere and we weigh in with a camera following us. And we're thinking one, it'll be like a six-part miniseries, like, you know, me and plus six interesting people. And one of the names that came up was Ted Nugent because I, I'm a fan of his music. I think he's one of the best guitar players I've ever seen. Yet he and I would probably disagree on one or a few topics. And so we actually picked, pitched it to Ted, who said he loved the idea, but he said, I got to go on. I'm busy with it. He had a, a ton of tour dates. So I think he's on now. But he said, I want to talk to Henry to thank him for thinking of me. Okay. And so Ted called, like on my phone in the office, I guess he got my number from the powers that be. <laughs> and suddenly it's, it's Ted on my phone. I'm at my desk like, okay, this is surreal. <laughs> and we talked for a few minutes and he said, uh, you know, like, what, do you think I'm a bad guy? I'm like, no, I, I just, some of the things you say, I just, I, I it kind of <laughs> takes my breath away. And then we quickly got on the topic of music. He said, you like all that old Detroit music? I go, yeah, man. I mean, y you, Mitch Ryder, the Stooges, MC5. I mean, it's kind of the best, it's some of the best music I've ever heard. I mean, as far, I, I asked him, I go, what is it? Is something in the water? What is it with you Michigan guys in guitar tone? Like no one gets tone. Like you, uh, Ron Ashton, Stooges, uh, Fred Sonic Smith, MC5. I go, you guys, I mean, you're so good. And he said, you gotta, we got to hang out sometime and we'll just talk about music. I went, I'll do that with you. So I'll be taking notes. And he was just telling me, you know, like, yeah, I used to hang out at the MC5 house and go see the Stooges. And I'm like, you're killing me. Because this is like, you know, I... That would have been heaven for me to see those bands like back in 1969 or whatever. Did you? When did you know him? Did you know him back in the day or did you only no, speak I, to him as, recently? As a punter, I would go see him like in high school in the 1870s, you know, Carter administration. I'd go <laughs> see him at play in my local arena in Washington, D.C. in a place called the Capitol Center in Largo, Maryland. And he was as good as rock and roll gets. I mean, it was – I saw the the – Double Live Gonzo lineup. And like, forget it. It was like two and a half hours of just getting beat up by music. It was fantastic. And to this day, uh, it's still a high watermark as far as gigs. And in the 90s, I met him on Politically Incorrect Bill Maher. And I said, hey, man, I'm a big fan. And he gave me a bow hunting catalog. I'm like, well, <laughs> thanks. You know, for his whack master. Right. You know. You get the croquet mallet and the and the bow. <laughs> anyway, I kept it because I'm a fan. And then I met him years later, uh, and I did his radio show, like St. Patrick's Day 1997, to crassly promote my next record. And I said, we met years ago, and, and we got to talking for like a couple of hours. And we, it was just about music, and I played him some of my new record, which he really liked. 
And he, between the commercial breaks, he was like playing riffs for me. We had a little headphone amp and he was sitting across from me on a stool playing. And I'm like, this is pretty cool. And so that's the kind of relationship I have with him where I, you know, you read some of the things he says, you're like, okay, that's really hard to take. And, but those records, you know, they're just so good to me. And I saw him play in 2000, opening for Kiss 2001, somewhere in there. And he was great, great. The tone, the playing, just fantastic. And so he's just an interesting uh, bunch of guys. Yeah, <laughs> and, a bunch of guys. You know yeah. what I mean? Because like he can finish a sentence. He's not, he's not, he's not stupid. He's hilarious. He has a steel trap memory. But then he'll just say, you know, the Obama's a subhuman mongrel. Like, man, you don't need to talk like that. Right. Because there's people you will inspire to punch some black guy in the parking lot for no reason. Like something bad can happen if you talk like that to the millions of people who love you. Like someone will get that message and they'll go south with it. Yeah. And when you're in that position, I don't believe in self-censorship. But I think you should be careful of what you say. I think there's some merit in having some control of yourself. And so I don't completely understand the guy. This currency and outrageousness. That's what it is. And you, you cash in by being the guy that says things you can't. I can't believe what he just said. And then you become the guy that goes places and says things that no one can believe that you're saying. You know, I, I, I know that there's some people that's how they get their next book deal yeah, or whatever. Yeah. For myself, I would never want to trade in that because my, my reality coming up through punk rock and all of that is very, very immediate in that I don't say anything about anybody without expecting them to hear it. And with me turning the next corner, like going to my car in your parking lot yeah. and having that person waiting for me at the car saying, hey, right. you said this and having them be able to hold it up on a, on a tablet and say. Right. And so I watch what I say because in my mind, I answer. I will have to answer to all of it. And so I would never say something where someone goes, really? Well, today's the day we're going to see who can kick who says ass because <laughs> – you know, men have this wrong idea that they, they, they can't be beat. Are you kidding? Yeah. Anyone can get knocked on their yeah. ass. You think you're tough? There's always, you know, you're in the business of tough guys. There's always a tougher guy around There's the corner. There's always a tougher guy. But more than that, it's like you don't, most of the conflict that you get in when you're talking shit about somebody, like someone like you or I can do an interview and talk shit about someone and then go public and you don't think twice about it. But then now it extends to social media and pretty exactly. much anybody could do it at any time. And it just seems so easy to do. But but I always try to think if that person was in front of me, how exactly. would I treat it? And if I would, if I would say "fuck this guy," like when he's in front of me, then this is a I have a real problem with this person. Sure, it's a real bad. But person. I would always wait until I was in front of that person, and mm. I have waited. I've bided my time with people I don't like, and you get into a conversation, and I'll, I have said, you know, very calmly, I I, I think you're a ridiculous person. <laughs> I, I think you're a standing, walking, talking billboard for cowardice sometimes people need to hear that too because sometimes people don't hear that they don't hear that from someone yeah, i'm not trying to help the guy yeah <laughs> but, but you are but believe me but i i waited yeah you waited until, until i was there. there the yeah. only people i'll rip on are politicians like some member of congress i think is just an inactive waste of food um that i'll say anywhere hoping it'll yeah. it'll bring him to me so I can say it to his or her face. But for the most part, 
the way I was brought up in the world of music and the street is if you say something, that guy will be lining you up for a broken jaw. Mm -hmm. So you better mean it, but maybe just wait until you guys are in a room and see what you really want to say. Because sniping from a, a, a windowless room from somewhere or being a, 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 a keyboard activist, eh, that's not that doesn't mean much to me. Yeah, I think, you know, Ted is the spokesperson for the right in in that he's this contrast in so many ways. He's this wild, and it used to be long hair. He doesn't have long hair anymore, but long-haired guitar player from Michigan. I mean, he's Ted Nugent. He should be this, he should be a drug user or something, right? He should be right. on tour all the time, but he's the opposite. He was like, doesn't do any drugs, doesn't drink, and he's super right-wing, and he supports, you know, the Second Amendment and guns, and he, there's... He's in this group of, and he has some very strong beliefs that he really does hold in that group. But then comes the outrageous stuff that he says, and you would get a mischaracterization of him because of some of the things he says. But if you meet him, like in person, person to person, he's a great guy. Yeah, I talk to him all the time. That, we text that's, each that's other. That's only been my experience with he's him. He's a great guy. Is I've had really cool conversations with him. Yeah, and I'm a hyper fan of the records i mean it's gospel to me that those records are in my dna yeah They're i perfect. don't i'm with you in that i don't know what fuels those and i just don't get statements. it you know yeah. i'm not here to rip on him i just honestly do not i can't reconcile the conversations i've had where he's super friendly and yeah. happy that you're a fan of the guy and and then you you watch some things he says uh you know on some stage somewhere and you're like wow that's that just bummed out my whole evening like that's like <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Like that's you. That's the First Amendment. Go do your thing. But like, wow, that's there's currency in that though. I really think that that getting that charge out of it, saying that outrageous thing, it, it keeps the ball rolling in some way. Boy, and it's not a ball I'd want to roll though. I don't want to roll that it, ball. It, either. it just doesn't seem sustainable. Yeah. Speaking I, of sustainable, I hear you have a Showtime special coming out tomorrow night. Wow, that was a great segue. It's pretty good, right? That was a I should fantastic be on radio, segue. dude. Yeah. I should, I, I should get a radio, a real radio yeah. show. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Joe Non Sequitur Rogan. Rip it on Ted Nugent. <laughs> I don't know where we go. Uh, uh, I yeah. like Ted. Yeah, yeah, so do I. Uh, Showtime special tomorrow, Friday. What's tomorrow? The 11th? The 10th. The 10th, sorry. Uh, Friday, August 10th, 10 p.m. East Coast, West Coast, Showtime. It's called Keep Talking, Pal. And so the. There it is. Uh, 10 seconds on that. They said, What are you going to name it? And I, I said, Keep Talking, Pal. They go, What does that mean? It's just it's how you talk yourself in and out of trouble. Like you're about to get punched out. Like keep talking, pal. Like if you don't if you don't get a laugh, you're not getting out of this bar. And that's kind of how uh, I came into talking shows was being as a young guy, skinny on Ritalin, not a good fighter, not a good fighter at all. You know, just not into it. And you know, the local bully. I've said something snarky or funny, and you know, all of a sudden he's got me by the scruff of my shirt with a fist in my face. And the only thing you can do is like imitate him so much that everyone else laughs, and like he has to drop you because he's now like drop. Well, drop your collar, not your body, um, because you're now making him laugh. And so, when in doubt, keep talking, pal. And the fact that I have a quote comedy special on Showtime is so unlikely. <laughs> From some guy from the minimum wage working world, I don't believe it myself. And so they said, "What are you going to call it?" And I, a lot of these, you know, people they have a lot of confidence. So I'm going to call it like destruction. Me, me and my mighty Wang take to the stage. <laughs> I, I don't have any of that. So like, keep talking, pal, because I know I'm really not supposed to be there. So 
How did you do your first show? Like, what what made you do your first talking show? Five dollars, um, <laughs> nineteen eighty three, a little wow. venue on Hudson, right off of like about ten paces north of Santa Monica Boulevard. It's like a, a street that dead ends onto Santa Monica Boulevard. It was an art space there called the Lassa Club, and. There was a, a local promoter in town, amazing guy, and he would get like 25 people on stage in one night. Everyone gets five minutes. And it'd be the singer of that band, the drummer of that band, that artist, that poet, like real artists who speak for a living. And then the guy with the funny tour journal or the guy from the band that we all like, and he's going to be an idiot for five minutes. And these shows were really fun because it just people on and off stage all night long, like running off stage. And... The bass player in Black Flag, Chuck Tukowski, fantastic intellect, he would get invited onto these bills. I would go with him because we were beach guys. We lived in the sticks and the gigs were in Hollywood. So we'll go into the big smoke. We'll go see the big city. I'd go with him because he had the band van. He'd go into town. I'd tag along. So he'd read out of some notebook his apocalyptic rantings. And one night the promoter said, you got a big mouth. Next week, you five minutes or like whatever, seven minutes, five bucks. All I could think of was the five bucks and like what I could go. We were starving yeah, as, as right. any, any band was. And so the next show, I got on stage at Lhasa, told a story about what had happened at band practice the day before where a white supremacist in a car tried to run over our guitar player because we had brown skinned people at our band practice. And so he yelled, he accused our guitar player of being a beep lover and tried to run him over on his way to the liquor store to get some orange juice. So our guitar player comes back a little shaken. Uh, I nearly got run over by a neo-Nazi, and let's go back to practice. And so for us, that was this Tuesday in the life of Black Flag. For an audience, they're like, huh? you hear Jaws hit the ground. And then I read something I had written. I go, well, my five minutes are up or whatever it was, and I left the stage. And it felt right. I felt like a fish dropped into water for the first time. Like, hey, I'm a fish. Like, I didn't wow. have a band, but I had no stage fright. And this me and a microphone, it felt more natural than music ever felt, which was cool to do, but never felt natural. Just felt like it's, it, this thing is in me. It's got to come out. I'm serving a, a, a monster. Where the talking shows, like, yeah, this is me. And after the show, people came up and said, when's your next show? I said, well, I'm leaving on tour. They go, no, no, no. When you're just talking. I said, well, no, that's a one-off. I got this $5 bill. I'm out of here. <laughs> and so the agent, the, the promoter guy said, okay, you're very good at that. You're a natural. So how about this? I, I promote all these different poets and performance artists. I'll get you all. I'll give you 20 bucks. You'll do 20 minutes opening for this guy. Okay. So I, you know, did 20 minutes. And then after... A handful of those shows, those poet types were opening for me because the black flag aspect kicks in. Like, oh, right. it's the dude from Black Flag. People show up. And I guess I was good enough. And so those poets weren't that happy. Like, I'm now opening for this guy? Okay. <laughs> and that was 83 turning into 84. By 85, I had gone to Europe for some poetry festival, which I kind of blagged onto in Holland. I had done a cross-country tour, 12 to 50 people a night sleep on the promoter's couch, go by Amtrak. And started my little book company, uh, 83, 84, self-published to this day. That's and, awesome. And it That's went from strength cool. to strength. And now it's a 14-month tour that takes in 20 countries, multiple nights in cities at nice theaters. Do you only bu use uh, yourself for your publishing company or do you publish anybody else's books? We used to. 
Uh, you, many years ago, we I, uh, people I knew who I thought were great writers, I put them out. We licensed Nick Cave's books from his publishers in Europe. Uh, we licensed a few different titles. We did photo books and uh, a couple of novels, short story collections. And it's very hard to uh, have a book company. It's hard to sell a book in the world unless it's like Stephen King or Danielle Steele. It's mega, you know, at the at the cash register at the airport store. Uh, if you're selling poetry books, uh, different kinds of literature, you are nothing but uphill. My books did okay. They still, they always do okay. Everyone else's books is like trying to sell dead animal guts. You know what I mean? Like no, <laughs> no one's that interested. They'll look, but they don't want to take it home. And so um, we stopped signing new writers sold through the, the press runs, let the licenses run out. Everyone got to keep their masters. And then we just concentrated on me because uh, I, I keep a whole staff busy with all the stuff I've got going. And so we publish, but we publish me. And I've done a bunch of books. How many books have you written? About 27. Holy shit, that's so crazy. Well, i got nothing else going on. Uh, all but two of them. Uh, we, I, I wanted to do a photo book a few years ago. And Heidi, who runs all my company, she's the smart one. So I showed her the manuscript. She goes, okay, the book is great, but let's not do it on our company because it's a lot of startup money for a photo book. It's just a lot of setup cost. Let's get you a literary agent and do it somewhere else. And so smart idea. And so we got a literary agent and we did get a book deal with a very good uh, Chicago. Uh, it's a Chicago company. Um, Chicago Review? I'm forgetting. Um, and they put out the photo book. And that was a learning experience, like working with an editor. Like, I'll go, well, here's the cover. And they go, well, well we're going to have a meeting about that. And I'm like, you're having a meeting? It's my book. It's my book cover. So I'm used to right. owning my own machine. But when you work with other people's money, everyone has a big opinion. So that, that book came out and did and continues to do very well. And many years ago, I did a kind of a best of, if I have any best of material, I did a best of for Random House many, many years ago that you still see. It, it, it's in print. And that's a lot of people's first book of mine because it's in stores. We pulled my company's books out of circulation because of Amazon because they can actually sell it cheaper than we can because they don't mind making five cents on a book because they're selling 80 billion books a second. So we pulled ourselves out of distribution. And now it's very much the website and it live shows. And we have less returns. We don't get a pallet of damaged books coming back that were, you know, abused in some bookstore in a shopping mall in the Midwest, like heavily thumbed but never taken home. So you can't buy your books off Amazon unless it's a third-party seller? Right. And uh, yeah. So you just sell us. them on your own? Yep. And you might not sell as many, but you don't get 1,100 returns. You got 1,100 returns? Well, you know what I, you know what really I mean? Like, like, well, when we were selling uh, everyone else's books, too, right. you'd get like a pallet of like books that look like a dog chewed them or like remainder stickers. It is what it is. Yeah. And so I am extraordinarily small of fame. I sell lots of books. They, they're, they do great as e-books as well. In fact, that's kind of overtaking. I'm not an e-book guy. I like to take a marker and mark books up. And so I buy paper ones. But apparently, the real world likes to read on their tablet. And so all my books are on that platform, thanks to Heidi. 
And apparently they sell very well. I don't keep track. I just write them. I don't count them. If you had to suggest to somebody a good book of yours to start with, what would you say to start with? If I, I was going to read your books, what should I start with? Oh, I would tell you to read Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. Um, <laughs> I would just tell you read a real writer. Um, get in the Van, my tour journals from Black Flag, is just a – people like that book. It's in a bunch of different languages. Uh, it's just a cool, insane read of like living this very uh, feral life, like you know, fighting women and music and relative poverty. <laughs> so that's a fun one to start. Sure. Um, I I like the travel books I've been writing the last few years. I have these. I, I write. Well, I travel all over the world, and so I write these books from these places, like from a ship in Antarctica, from a tent in the deserts of Timbuktu. And those travel books I like quite a bit. And um, A Dull Roar, they always have an A, uh, an A at the beginning. Uh, uh, a Dull Roar, uh, I'll have to come up with the rest of the names. Your, sort of, your manic dedication to work is very inspiring. Like it makes me feel like I need to work more. Like when you're writing all the time and doing all these things, like you're one of those guys, it's like, it feels like you're always with your foot on the gas. Yeah, I'm kind of furious <laughs> for work. Yeah. But I, I don't, it's, it's not what, it's what I do, but it's also what I don't do in that I don't have a family and I'm not putting it down. I just don't have that. I'm just not chipped that way. I, I never thought of having kids. I don't have a wife. I don't have friends, really. I Most of the people I know uh, either pay a, a salary or a commission to. My phone doesn't ring. My old best friend from since I was 12, Ian Mackay of the band Fugazi, he and I talk every Sunday if possible. Uh, but past that, my phone usually doesn't ring unless it's an interview. Or Heidi going, hey, you're late. Get over there. Is that good? It it is what it is. Does it work for you? Like is it's this... all it's all I know. I've been that way since I was five. But the, the no friends part. Well, I don't. I'm not looking for enemies. I'm not looking right, for right, a right. fight. Of course. I just don't want to come over on the weekend for dinner. No. No. I, I, I ever have a good time at dinner with somebody. I'm just uncomfortable <laughs> that I'll say the wrong thing, and I just act. I look at the table full of people and go, act like them. You should be friends with comics because you can't say the wrong thing because no one cares. Yeah. But then you have to, then they'll call and say, hey, come out with us. We're going. Then you have to go. Ah, you don't have to go. You, you uh, just no, say, I'm, fuck I'm, that. I'm, I'm, I'm not going. I'm a deadbeat. I'd be a deadbeat friend. Cause That's I'd, fine. I'd never want to go with anyone to do anything. You don't have to. But but well, look at all the phone calls See, I'm saving. It sounds like you're managing expectations versus you know like it's, it doesn't sound like you don't like friends. It's just you don't want expectations. I I, I you know as going to get in the way. So well, also I'm just kind of moody in that. Yeah, we're going to go out and do this thing, and then I don't want to see anyone or do anything until 2028, <laughs> and I don't want to cancel. And so uh, here, he, this is my big, be, besides hanging out with you, uh, my big social uh, thing is many, many years ago, 2003, I did a song with William Shatner, Bill Shatner, <laughs> on, on his album, and we became pals. Henry, come by the house for Monday night football. <laughs> and he invited me to the house for Monday night football. He lives a few traffic lights from me. 
And I'm walking up the stairs to the, the living room where the big TV is. And I heard all this laughter and voices and I froze. And I was right at the threshold of the door and I said, turn back, turn back, turn back. <laughs> I'm, I'm turning back. Henry! And he saw me. And I'm like, hey, Bill! <laughs> and I walked in and met all his really cool friends. And he, at least for me, Bill is one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. And it's one of the oddest friendships I have in that I've been going to Bill Shatner's house every year since 2003. So what's that? 15? 15 years. Right. And I will be there this year. I'm on his next record. He's doing uh, another record? Oh, yeah. I, I did the vocal last year. Rocket Man. Um, this is, uh, it, it'll be fun. I'll, I'm not going to, you know, it's, it's for him to announce it. But um, every great once in a while, his assistant will contact me. Hey, Bill really wants to see you. Uh, how about like next, you guys, are you free for next Wednesday? Go meet him and the wife in the valley and go eat. I'm like, yeah. And I, it's great to see him and his amazing wife. And I truly value that friendship. I mean, I look forward to seeing him. I really enjoy hearing what he's up to because he was doing like five things. And it's become this thing where I really look forward to football season. I don't know much about football. I have no idea what a halfback does. They run. Um, I think they run. I don't I, I, I never knew. But I like going there. And it's always the same group of people, people he's known for like 500 years, and they're super nice. And I've kind of sort of known them for like 15 years. And it's so odd because I have nothing else like that really in my life. I'm just a weirdo. Just William Shackner. Yeah, it's weird. Um, <laughs> sounds the, awesome. The other thing I would do once a year... And sadly, it ended. But for a few years, I would go to Gail Zappa's birthday party on January 1st because I would play a lot of her husband's music on my radio show, Frank Zappa. And one time someone in the family wrote me and said, hey, thanks for playing dad on the show. I'm like, are you kidding? I love those records. And then Gail, the mom, the wife wrote and said, hey, thank you. And, um, you know, we know who you are here and, and we like you. I have a birthday party every January 1st. Why don't you come up to the house this year or next next year like you know and i i did and that was like three or four years in a row i did that until gail passed away and you know in the more you get there or whatever it is like two in the afternoon two hours before i'm genuinely nervous to go be in a room full of extraordinarily nice people with fantastically good food and everyone was always so nice to me and like, it's like a who's who you walk in and you're like, wow, it's just all these people you recognize. I'm not here to name drop, but some of the tables I sat at at that thing, I'm like, really? Am I really talking to like, really fantastic. And she was always so nice to me. And like last time I was up there, one of my books is like in the living room. I'm like, wow. And when she passed away, I, I wrote one of the family members. I said, I am so sorry. Like, th I thank you for the hospitality. Your mom was so great to me. And I'm kind of like the rescue dog. I'm used to being outside. <laughs> uh, so I don't come inside very often. And I went to that birthday party because the, just the friendliness of that, 
I wouldn't as socially nerve wracking as those things are for me. I had such respect for that extension of kindness. I cannot disrespect it by not going. Mm. I wouldn't dare. The samurai in me says, you do not disrespect. You must be respectful, right. even if it makes you nauseous with social anxiety, because <laughs> I just don't know what to do. Um, I can't say no, because it's such a nice thing to do for someone. Yeah. Like, it she must not really know how I am, otherwise she never would have invited me. So, <laughs> um, but things like that, out of sheer politeness and respect for someone being friendly to me, I'm kind of a pushover just because I'm like, wow, that was so nice. I must salute that. I you think know? it's so good that you're open about your social anxiety and then about how you feel like being around all these people. Because uh, a lot of people on the outside, they see someone like you, you know, black flag, all your spoken word things, your books, your fucking, I mean, I, I always go back to uh, that, uh, uh, the liar song, mm -hmm. your fucking neck was like the size of my waist and you're screaming and yeah. you're painted red and like you're this crazy intimidating guy in a lot of ways. So to hear you talk about social anxiety and how weird you feel. And I think we all can, we all feel that. I always feel like that. I mean, it doesn't matter. I think no matter how famous you get, you're, if you're paying attention, you're going to have an imposter syndrome. You're, you're always going to feel like you don't belong there. If you're actually paying attention. Yeah. And if you don't, you'll pro you're, probably, you're probably delusional in yeah. some sort of a way. I wonder about the people who don't. Right. Like I never I, – I get to do cool stuff. And the, before I go into that, uh, to, uh, on your point, it's easy for me to be in front of people. That's a very different thing than being with people. I can be the party, but going to the party is difficult. Interesting. Put me in front of like five people, 5,000 people, stage fright. No, I can't wait to be out there. You're a performer type. Yeah. Like you love that audience. So they showed up. Like, are you kidding? Can't, I'm a dog with a wagging tail. I want to get out there and, and get it going. I can't wait. I wait the whole day on tour to get out there. The whole day is about 8 o'clock, you know, stage time. Um, being amongst people like going to like a gallery event i go see a shepherd fairy thing or something and people are super nice to me and i'm always polite back but i'm a little nervy but if they say can you get up and speak for five minutes oh yeah i got this <laughs> that's so strange well just it is strange but it's also um it's a way to avoid being with people be in front of them mm. it's a way to be in the room with people just be the center of attention so maybe that's coming from some kind of neediness or some deprivation as a you know what i didn't get as a kid um but it, you make a great point about that when you really think well this is where i belong <laughs> I, I think you lose all the fun of it yeah and you turn into kind of a jerk so when i every 500 years i go to one of those premieres i get invited and you're standing you're, you're in a room full of tons of really good food and none of those people eat. So I just like go in there and come out nine pounds heavier, a bunch of shrimp. Um, <laughs> I just eat. But you, you're, I was at a, a big Hollywood premiere, big, big movie years ago. And it's like that one, that one, that one, that one. And they're all like, ah, it is their lives. And I, I'm with a, a buddy of mine. We blagged in there and we're like, what are we doing here? This is so cool because we know we shouldn't be here. And after shaking Ike Turner's hand, <laughs> 10 minutes later, I'm back in my own kitchen going, that, 
was so weird. Like, what a surreal evening. And because uh, my friend and I were standing next to each other, and he said, that looks like Ike Turner. I go, no, man, that is Ike Turner. He looked, looked like a human barracuda. He's, like, terrifying. I said, let's go meet him. I'm like, come on. Like, we bought a ticket. We're at the dance. Let's, let's go talk to this guy. He's like, no, 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 no. And I just walked right over there. I said, you invented rock and roll, Rocket 88. And he went, yes, I did. He shook my hand. Wow. And I said, he first ever distorted guitar on tape, which is kind of true. And he went, that's right. And I fluffed him up. And he was all happy to meet me. And I said, hey, and here's my friend. And I brought my friend over and we shook his hand and kind of stood with him for a minute and went, okay, so it's probably not going to get any better for us. So let's get out of here. <laughs> and so we, we ate a few more handfuls of mini burritos and we bailed. <laughs> but it was one of those nights where like, we weren't supposed to be in there. And if I ever lose that, yeah. then just never talk to me again because I'll just I'll, my head would have disappeared up part of me well that anxiety and that insecurity is a big part of the fuel that keeps everything moving super and, fuel and, and for keeps me keeps you analyzing yourself yeah and anger yeah I'm mad at I, I I like fighting and I'm not fighting like in a ring for me a lot of things are confrontation like tour is what you think I can't do 47 shows in 48 days no, actually, my next tour is 47 and 47. Um, I have a day off, but I have two shows a few days later in one day. So, um, well, you think I can't? Well, then book 20 more. <laughs> like, book 200 more in the winter and just give me a llama and a knife and I'll make every gig. Like, like watch this. And, and that's so much of what fuels me. Like, I'm going to write a Yeah. And, like, I come up with these huge ideas for books. Like, that's going to take me five years to write it. And it did. And I just finished it. It's going to the proofreader soon. I have this epic project. I what just is finished. It? It's, it's a series of music books. It's 407,000 words. What? Yeah. It's a bit much. But, <laughs> but, but so am I. And it was this idea. How many pages is that? It's a, I don't know. It's a lot. Thankfully, it's mostly on a hard drive, so we don't have to, like, deforest some park. Um, but it was an idea I had. I said, okay, this is going to take a lot of years to execute this idea. And so, like, watch me work seven days a week on this thing. Watch me stay up until the next day working on this thing. And a, a lot of what fuels me, that's what gets me into auditions. Like, I think, you know, like, yeah, you audition for this TV show. I'm not an actor. So am I going? Yeah, I'm going. And I sit in that hallway, like 20 years older than all these other people. And they got the good gym bodies on, they got fantastic hair, chiseled bodies, and they all know each other. I'm like this weird old man going for the same part. The only guy not dipped in cologne. I'm like, oh, man. And I go in there and I bomb, of course. <laughs> I get my parking pass validated and li listen to Slayer on the way home. Take, <laughs> take the lump out of my How throat. How often do you do that? How often are you auditioning for Depends things? Depends if I'm in town and there's interesting things happening. Um, more and more, uh, as I don't know what's happening, but I take more meetings and just get more offers. Like, hey, we like you for this, yes or no. Cool, Yes. But there's auditions I do uh, for voiceover, for like animated or like car ads or what have you. And acting. I, I audition for all kinds of things. And every great once in a while, the audition will get work. But mainly, I just get offers. We like you for this. It starts in October. I'm in. And that happens fairly often now. But I get in those lines at, at any major studio you want to imagine. Or I go in for the 
meeting with a casting person, they kind of mm, look you over. But I do those raw auditions where you leave and you see like five headshots on a desk. It is what it is. And you get literally, you're out of there in about 35 seconds. You walk in, you're uh, Henry. Henry, uh, are you ready? Sure. You have any questions? No. Stand on this piece of tape. She'll be reading with you. And you, you know, da, 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 da. thank you very much for coming in. And you leave the trailer and uh, you get back on the 101 and go home and you never hear from them again. Often. For me? Most of the time. Out of 100 of those, 98 times. I think that's for everybody. Oh, I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying you asked about auditions. Hell yeah, I go in there. I think that's one of the things that makes actors so fucking weird. Is not just that they need attention in the first place. They get told no a lot. They get told no a lot. Rejection sucks. It sucks, and they're already insecure in the first place, and then they sort of try to model their behavior based on what they think the casting agents and the producers want to hear. And they change, and they develop this style of communicating that's very actory. It's a weird way to make your living. I mean, I've never relied on acting as my source income. In 1984, when I was 23, I had a a thing that has been serving me up to sitting here with you now. I was very young and you know, 23 years of age, a young idiot. And I looked all around me and all my peers were super talented. Who are my peers? Minor Threat, Bad Brains, Husker Du, The Meat Puppets, The Dead Kennedys. I'm just surrounded by really talented people who are brilliant, great songwriters. And between tours, many of them are waiting tables, living with mom, living on couches, you know, uh. sleeping at band practice, you know, with a kick drum a pillow as, as their pillow, just like, you know, roughing it. And I, I reckon that I'm less talented than all of them. And if they're waiters between tours, the only reason I'm not is Black Flag never stops touring. Like we're, the ball never hit the ground because we'd starve. And so I better get plans B, C, D, E, F, and G ready because music's not going to sustain me. Ironically, it went very well for me. And so I was doing the writing. So I said, I'm going to really get better at writing. I'm going to really bear down on this. The talking shows, I'm getting 35 people a night. I'm going to get 50 people a night. And then voiceover people started coming like, hey, can you do a voiceover? I got a voice. What do you want me to I better learn to say yes to stuff. And by the mid-80s, hey, you want to be in a movie? Yeah. I mean, like, what do I have to lose except, like, calories from starving? And so it was fear of not eating that, you know, and knowing I better have a plan. And so I started developing that in the 80s and 90s. And from that came when I'm done with this, I'm going to go immediately into this documentary. And then I'm finishing this radio show. And then I'm going off to do this film. And then I'm going on tour. And then I'm coming back and finishing this book. And it turned into this, like, juggling all these things. So I never had to be a full-time actor. Like that's how I pay the rent. That would be terrifying right up there with being a professional comedian. Like, I don't know how someone acts for a living without being really good or out of their minds with anxiety. But being a professional comedian, at least you write your own stuff. So you're kind of in control of that. And then you don't have to pay. It doesn't seem that rough. And then you don't have to pay people like you don't have to pay roadies you don't have a drummer that has to show up also you don't have the bass player who you got to get along with like there's so many variables with a band that comedians don't have like we always look at you guys and go wow i don't know how the fuck you guys do it because you there's not as much like you you might do the same size venues that we do but you're splitting the money with all these fucking people yep 
You know, and then a lot of times today, the record company gets a piece. They get a piece of everything, right? They get a piece of your merchandise. Yeah, you see bands play really big places, and it's amazing how much money they don't make. Yeah. Or each guy in the band gets, you're like, really? Yeah. Huh. And then you see, you know, someone, like a small comedian playing like a 150-seater for two nights, two sets a night, you know, the, the laugh whatever in the Midwest. And you're like, wow, wow, that's a pretty good weekend. Like, because he's just taking it home in his suitcase. Yeah, you can get by. You can get by. Yeah, and you can work. You can work everywhere. You know, for a band, I think it's more, the the venues are more more limited. Places you go are more limited. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think uh, that's interesting that you're, it it was almost like a, a desperation to not have to work a job as a waiter. That kept you just hustling and well, I just figuring knew, out other I just ways. knew that the straight world, because I'd been in it. I come from it, you know, minimum wage work and everything. Mm-hmm. And I knew I couldn't survive in it because I, you know, you get as a young adult, you start to figure out who you are. And I go, okay, I'm not an artist, but I'm an artist type. I'm, an, I'm nuts. You can't put me in a straight job. I can pass for normal just because I can task it. I can totally do it. Like you can put me in a Ralph's, a Kroger's, a Starbucks. I will totally get in there and hit the work and clean it all and serve it up with a smile. But I'll be going crazy inside. Yeah. I, I will be punching everybody the wall. in those places is going crazy inside. I don't know. But um, I can't sustain in that. And I haven't had to for many years. I've been lucky. I've been in the world of lunatics since 1981. Yeah. Being a crazy person out with other crazy people. And when I look at a straight job, I'm like, man, I don't think at this point I could hack it. Not because I'm spoiled, just because I've never had to tether my adult mind to that. I work seven days a week. But on Henry stuff, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. me. It's not. It's a different thing. It's a different thing. Yeah, you, you enjoy that work. Yeah, it, and it's it's way over sixty hours a week. I mean, it's I do two shifts usually, two eight to ten hour shifts, depending on Every the day. workload. Well, I can't do four hours of sleep a night. But How I, much I, you sleep? I I time my sleep. I hit the stopwatch on the phone before I go to bed. Just as clock sleep patterns, I did about six point something hours of sleep last night. That's good. It's good. I feel great today. I barely ate, and I uh, got in a good workout, and all last night I did a lot of pull-ups. I played 15 7-inch records, and between flipping them over, I got a beam in my living room. It's a beam coming out of the ceiling that supports me, and I just run over there and just do a bunch of pull-ups and then go change the record. <laughs> so you want more music? You have to pay it, pay and pay. And you're doing all this by yourself, all alone. Yeah, but by bedtime, you are hurting and ready to sleep so Mm. i got good sleep last night so you mix the workout in with your enjoyment of music you just space it in between the songs yeah last night was pulling tonight at the turntable i'll be listening to more records i'll I'll just do sets of push-ups next to the turntable that's actually a smart move because like that's probably a good interval of rest like get a good hard workout in and then you listen to a four-minute song yeah and then but i do it all night and it's just, uh, I'm not doing 50 sets, uh, 50 rep sets. I'm doing like 15 to 25, but I'm doing them for quite a while. By the time I go to bed, it's Advil time. I'm like, ow, I'm too old for this. But um, I, I work on something every day on tour. I don't take vacations. I'm not trying to brag. I just can't, I can't handle not doing it, the th- whatever the thing yeah. is. Yeah. Well, you found an interesting way to live life. I don't know anybody like you, but it's working for you. Yeah. 
it works on all levels. And like I, I can sustain, I pay my bills, I'm not bored, and I get, for the most part, to call my own shots. And you seem happy. Happy when I'm working. Yeah. Yeah, happy. Happy with the tasks. Yeah, I value work. I'm an achievement junkie. Like, if I'm depressed, I just pick something to do, like finish a radio show, edit this thing, transcribe this chapter from a notebook. And after I'm done, I'm like, okay, that's the antidepressant was actually Mm -hmm. doing something, which is not the worst. It's not booze. It's not a pill. It's the treadmill. Yeah. Or it's the, oh, that damn thing. I got to get it written. Well, shut up and write it. When I'm done, it's like an endorphin thing where I'm great for another day. There was an article written about happiness. And that was one of the things that they said that one of the things that seems to sustain people's happiness or facilitate happiness is accomplishing tasks, like setting goals for yourself, accomplishing those goals and getting this sense of completion. Yeah. That you've, you've actually done the work and you did it and you disciplined yourself and got through it. And that this is one of the major keys to happiness for a lot of people. Works for me. Totally works for me. Cause I've me tried as well. I've tried everything but drugs so I've been battling with depression since I was a little kid. And I just knew it. I'm like, what is this? It's just right. awful. And, you know, later I found out it was depression. And I don't want to do drugs. I'm not, I just don't want it. Mm-hmm. My brain plus drugs. It's like someone else's idea. It terrifies me. So I had to figure out what do you do? And so that's where the gym, you know, working out really is a big help. Writing. But listening to music, that is like uh, kind of my drug. You know, I just put the records on and like, three songs in you're like oh there's that feeling buoyancy neutral it's like floating in the tank or when Mm -hmm. you're scuba diving you get your air just right and you're floating that's how i feel when i have the music on i'm like ah this is as good as it gets and that's why i always have you know record i'm always looking at new records going to the record store there's more happiness coming in does the exercise work better or the same as work like for managing depression uh the workout is maintenance it doesn't achieve much, but I achieve the workout. But do I, you feel like the the endorphin release? Does that help you? Does yes. That... Yeah, it does. And I, I, as the Buddhists say, I made merit. I, I, I went in there and did my time on the treadmill. I don't want to be there. I, I, <laughs> you know, like, I, yeah. I, it's like the last 15 minutes. I don't. I'd rather be somewhere else. Like, yeah, it's cool. You'll be fine. Sit down. Do your work. That's why before the podcast, I was suggesting hot yoga to you. And you, you seem to be very stiff lately. You've got some injuries and some things yeah, that are it's all bothering coming back. me. Yeah. 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 Dude, I'm telling you, that'll fix a lot of that shit. It'll really Yeah, I know you, you, have, you have a great workout diversity. You, you, when you and I were talking before, we were at your place and you said some mornings you feel like training this way and you'll go to that gym mm-hmm. or you'll train like with uh, judo or whatever, and then the next day it's going to be kettlebells. So you really like to mix it up. I think it's good for a body to always be guessing what's yeah. coming next. Yeah, I think that's important. I also, I, there's some things that I really have to do. I think I need at least one day of hard cardio a week, and I think I need at least one day of hard lifting weights a week, but I also think I need at least one day of yoga a week, huh. at least. Yoga is, to me, it's one of the most important things that I do, because for that 90 minutes, I can't go anywhere. I don't touch my, my phone's not in the room with me which right. is me and a, a, a jug of water and the yoga mat and the class and a bunch of old ladies that are kicking my ass these old ladies are fucking tough man this is old lady she goes to this workout class with me i see her there all the time she's got to be close to 70 she doesn't even bring water 
She just toughs it out. She's there for 90 minutes, sweating and grunting through the postures. And those you're doing an hour and a half class, those last 20 minutes in 104 degrees, it's so hard to get through. But when you get through, you just feel like you feel better. I just, I can't, almost like can't, while I'm in it, I can't wait to do it again. Like while I'm struggling and I was like, God, I need to do more than this. I need to do this more often rather. I can't wait to do this again. Like I always feel that. And it just lengthens everything. Like all the back things and the leg things, the hamstring things, just stretches everything out, lengthens it and all the tension, it just straightens it out and loosens it up. And I just feel like for a guy like you or I, who does a lot of, uh, a lot of like, especially like used to a lot of heavy lifting, you were saying a lot of yeah. deadlifts and squats. This is the antidote for all that stuff. Right. It's decompression and and for your body maintenance, it's just phenomenal. Probably lets loose the lactic acid out of your muscle tissue. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, here's what I've observed. You know, I live in Los Angeles, so there's a lot of yoga people. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I know them because they have a mat. Mm -hmm. But you can also see how they walk, how they sit. They're so in their body, yeah. and there is a a grace to you know. I'm not I'm not trying to put anyone in the pejorative, but a yoga person, mm -hmm. where there's not only are they limber, they're just really okay. Though this their body articulation, you're like okay, I don't have that. I'm a herky jerky, uncoordinated person, but there's a a a hum coming from that person's mm -hmm. overall body. It's just—it's a beautiful machine. The way they articulate themselves and the way they sit. I'm like, it's a wow. very unusual balance—the balance of like the. But core you can tell someone who does it; they mm -hmm. have that. Yeah, and it's not subtle. I recognize it. You would in love people. it, man. You know what? You would love it because it fucking sucks. And while you're doing it, man, you have the internal dialogue's crazy. Yeah, you want to bolt. <laughs> well, you you want to bolt, but you also start going over your life and your mind and dealing with all your bullshit and your to-do list and all the things you're 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 doing wrong or slacking there's something about really struggling in these static positions for like a minute where you're trying to like hold your leg up there and your sweat sweat is literally pouring off your arms and your head and there's something about that man that it's just really cleansing hmm. it just really empties you i just think it's a thing that you're missing that you would really love if you tried i bet if you did it and then you came back and we did a podcast a year later be like fuck I fucking love it. It's changed my life. It's changed my life. Yeah, I know a lot, a lot of fighters, a lot of people who mm. like are hectic yeah. for a living. Yep. They're yoga people. Yep. And like yeah. in the 70s, you say yoga, someone's going to punch you. Yeah. Like yoga, wham. <laughs> well, you know why I found out about it? Do you know who Hicks and Gracie is? Well, I, are we talking about the Gracie, the, yes. the family? Well, the family, Hoist Gracie is the most famous because he's probably the most important figure ever in the history of martial arts because he won the first Ultimate Fighting Championship and showed that a small man can actually beat larger men with technique and skill. Well, his brother is Hickson, and his brother is like universally regarded as one of the greatest jiu-jitsu guys, if not the greatest of all time. And he was different than everybody else in that he did yoga. Like his thing was, like I'd never heard of a martial artist that got into yoga, but Hickson would do these breathing exercises and he'd do these balance beam exercises and he was always doing yoga and stretching and that was a giant part of his workout. And he was above and beyond everyone else in his time period like in the 90s everyone was scared of Hickson hmm. he was the man I mean but it wasn't like there was any debate it's very rare that you get something that is so uh, antagonistic and so tightly contested as two men using martial arts techniques trying to strangle each other and one guy stands above all 
by such a large margin, and that was Hickson. And I really do believe that part of it was his mind, part of it was his physicality, but it, a lot of that physicality was enhanced by his dedication to yoga. Huh. Yeah, he's a legit yogi. Like, he does that fire-breathing shit where he sucks his stomach in in that weird way and has it move up and down. Wow. You ever see someone yeah. do that? Yeah. He does that like a like a real yogi. Like, it's, it's a real trip. And... I think because of his, uh, his, his, his like physical, like you can see there, he's got, he's got this video here. You can see him do this fire breathing shit. Like watch what he does with his stomach. It's, it's kind of fucking crazy. He sucks his stomach way, way, way up deep into his rib cage. He does this breath of fire thing. And then as it gets going, he starts pumping his, like, here, see if you pull it up there, Jamie, the, the part where he starts to do it. Look at this. Wow. Yeah, like, what the fuck, Whoa. man? Isn't that insane? Yeah. It's crazy. And that's yeah. just one of the things. He has abdominal muscle control. Yeah. Who, like, who gets that? Ridiculous. That's a muscle group you, you never try and articulate, make it do anything. Yeah. Well, he, you know, he practiced yoga for a long, long, long time. And because of that, he had this phenomenal core strength and phenomenal balance. And he just had a, a giant advantage over everyone else. And a, I think a lot of that advantage was his his ability to move his body was different. But it's also just for a guy like you that's been just lifting weights for so long, it's the perfect antidote for your body. It's like your body will react to like, oh yeah, stretch this out. Thank you. Thank you. We've been asking for this. Yeah. You know, but lengthen this, hold that pose. This is instead of just lifting something, you know, which is like what men like to do. Instead of that, you're holding your arms out there like that. You're like, fuck, I don't even have any weight in these things and I want to drop them. Yeah, I've, I've done a, you know, every once in a while I've worked out with someone else and they go, okay, we're going to do this and this. And then you work out with, and then you let them, you let yourself be trained. Yeah. And I've done a few workouts like, okay, I'm going to kill you. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? Like by the end of this, you won't be able to take your shirt off to change. And I've done, you know, where you're benching this much, then this much, then this much. Mm -hmm. You end up doing like 150 reps. And by the time you can't lift the bar. And you can't lift your arms. You're literally trembling from exhaustion. And I've told that to people. They go, that's yoga. You will tremble from exhaustion. Yeah. And you'll be so happy when you leave because of how good you feel and you can't wait to go back. And you won't blow your joints out yeah. the way you will with weightlifting. I, well, I already have. Yeah. There's no I've way already, around it. I, I've, I've paid. <laughs> yeah. You know, I did a thing the other day uh, on, on advice of Heidi, the manager. And uh, Joey Diaz, I tried that cryo cryotherapy. Yes, and I am not. I'm, I'm. I'm a naysayer in lowercase. I understand why it would work, and I'm not saying it's quackery, but I just <laughs> feel like I'm in an Annie Hall scene when I walk into these places, like. Because it's like super. Hey, we're the whatever therapy, and I'm moonlight and this is it. <laughs> and then like you shake the guy's hand and he damn near breaks your arm these people are in incredible shape and so i i said okay I, you know i got in the robe and i went into that room for two minutes and 45 seconds and the endorphin rush it's like a ups truck of endorphins yeah. you come out of there like can i go Woo! back in like I <laughs> I, and since i got out of it all I've been thinking about is going back in. In the parking lot, I just wanted to turn around and get another shot. Yeah, and yeah. I asked the guy at the counter, I go like, what is that? He goes, it's endorphins. Yeah. It just unleashes them like fight or flight. You just yeah. get this rush. I said, I, I want to go back. He said, come and see us again sometime. But um, 
it was incredible. And it's not long. Like you're out of there before you know it. Ten minutes, you're in and out. Yeah, but yeah. wow, it, it I'm knocked a big me fan. out. And I know that a lot of athletes, and I know that you use it, uh, Joey Diaz, but all the uh, on the brochure, mm -hmm. apparently all these sports teams, like it's just part of what you do. Well, one thing it has been proven to do, there's a lot of naysayers when it comes to this, even scientists apparently that don't exercise, but people that do exercise and do try it all pretty much universally regarded as being beneficial. But one of the things that's been shown in clinical studies is that it reduces and uh, it produces more anti-inflammatory bodies in the blood. It, it, that's what I was talking Yeah. So it, it does reduce inflammation in your body and it just, but I think just for the mood elevation, it's worth doing. I mean, it does so that norepinephrine release that you get when you get out of there. It's it's unbelievable. You get that. Yeah. It, it wasn't subtle. No, it wasn't it's like, amazing. Oh, it was like wow. And the sun feels great in your face when you get outside. You're like, ah. Everything felt great. I yeah. mean, I I'm, I don't do much on as far as stimulants like a co coffee and aspirin. I guess. Uh, so I'm not even sure what the effect is, if it, anything. And so it doesn't take much to make me go, well, that's different. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that I walked out back to the parking lot like, damn. Yeah. That was fantastic. I do three and then I take 10 minutes off and then I do three again. So I do two sessions. Wow. I, yeah, I do two back to back. So yeah. you go in, you do my like, body what, warms like two or three minutes? Up. I do three minutes, and then my body warms back up to like, once your skin temperature gets around 84 degrees, I'll let you get back in there. And then I go back in there again for another three minutes. So wait, how many in, an, like you'll go into this place? Three minutes, and then I wait for 10 minutes, and then I go in for another three minutes. So you do two? Two sessions. In, two sessions in one visit? Yes. Yeah. And how many times, how often, how many times a month? Whenever I can. But I've been mixing it up more with sauna. I've been doing a lot of sauna lately. I kind of like that as much, if not more. Um, what, sauna, the sauna? Yeah. Sauna, sauna seems to be really good for muscle injuries. There's something about the sauna for any time they're like muscle tissue or soreness or weird shit. Sauna just blows that all out. And sauna is also one of those things that it, it's what it is is your body reacting to extremes, right? Whether it's extreme cold or extreme heat, your body produces heat shock proteins and cold shock proteins. And all those things are doing is reducing inflammation. That's, that's the number one thing. Like you want to feel better, reduce inflammation. And this one of the best ways to manipulate your body is either through cryotherapy or through sauna. Both huh. of those things are amazing. Yeah, uh, someone I know that she says it's all about inflammation. Mm. You got to beat the inflammation. Yeah, cut out all the sugar, cut out all the carbs, cut out all the bread, cut out all the alcohol. If you can do that, you'll massively reduce inflammation. Yeah, that's her gospel. Is all that? That's yeah. nothing good in there for you. Yeah, man. And once your body gets used to it too, that's what's really interesting. You don't even really crave it anymore. Like uh, I still like ice cream. I still enjoy like a, a dessert or something like that, but. It doesn't have the same impact. It used to, like, I see a sandwich, and I go, oh, look at that sandwich. Look at that pastrami sandwich, big, thick bread. Yeah. And that doesn't do it for me anymore. I don't, it doesn't, I recognize what that is. Like, oh, that's a trick. That's a trick. That's yeah. not even really food. Yeah, I, I don't eat as much as I used to. I just feel so much better when I just skip the middle meal. And like, whose idea was it three meals a day anyway? You don't need that. Right. No. And I found that I can live very comfortably. I'm not into like torturing myself. It's like, oh, I'm going to starve and nail myself to this chair. But, you know, if I'm too, dis too distracted to work because I'm hungry, I need to address that. But what I right. have found is if I just kind of don't eat a lot after a couple of days – I'm like a jet in the high air where you're burning no fuel because you're just in the thin air, where I walk pie food going like, nah, I've had 
like two meals in the last two and a half meals, like in the last three days. And I feel fine. Actually, I feel like really bouncy. Like yeah. I don't need the, the post-workout seven-minute power nap. I, I, I'm feeling really good. Do you do intermittent fasting at all? Um, y- yes. On the, the woman I work with, you know Heidi, mm-hmm. she does that sometimes. And I'll just follow her lead. So she'll go, hey, I'm doing this. I'll, I'll try that. Because right. I just don't know this stuff. Mm-hmm. And she knows a lot more about it than I do. So I just do what she does. And so a few years ago, I got into like one meal a day. I was just trying it out. No one told me to. I was in India, of all places. And I was out all day taking photos and sweating. And I would eat dinner. And that would be it. Mm-hmm. And I would like sleep through breakfast and go back out and with my camera. So dinner became my meal. And the first three days of that was a little tough. And then it was like I never wanted to. I kind of felt bad when I went back to the Western, boy, I'm eating a lot of food. Your body adapts. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we can adapt. You can live on pizza for the rest of your life very happily. (laughs) All, you know, whatever. But your body really does adapt to that intermittent, that time. Well, no, I'm saying it'll adapt to anything. It'll adapt to too much food Mm -hmm. or it'll adapt to like a fraction of what you used to eat. Right. Here, but just here's what I have found. When I start limiting the food, I'm more alert. My sleep is more restorative, and I bounce out of bed. Like, I'm just flying out of bed. Mm -hmm. I don't have that afternoon drowsiness. I just stay with it, and I just feel way more buoyant and present. Yeah. Uh, Type faster, just concentrate more. And when I'm on tour, it's usually I do one point something meals a day. Like, I'm about to leave on tour. It'll be, it's an evening meal post-show. I put myself into an eight-hour feeding window and 16-hour fasting window every day, huh. and I've been pretty consistent with that over the last like four or five months. And it has a it has a big impact, man. When you, you when I eat dinner, you know, say if I'm done at eight o'clock, I just I just time it out. 16 hours later is when my first meal comes. I can have a coffee in between now and then, but right. nothing with like any real significant calories. I'm just having some liquid or something like that, and right. that's it. And then it just by doing that, man. I just like I wake up in the morning. I'm not craving breakfast. I'm not. I'm not even hungry. My body's just totally adapted to yeah. it. Yeah, just it gives your body a chance to digest. I think we're always in the state of feeding, and your body just never has really a chance to digest it's all like that. It's like juggling. You know, the body's like as it's processing, it's incoming like really yeah. another order <laughs> exactly. where it never gets to realize digestion like yeah. we're done it's always in like you're like a cow yep they're always processing nutrition yeah uh, and i i wonder if that's a western model yeah because in other parts of the world uh, people live very differently than we do it just it is what it is and a meal is it's almost just a thing that happens now and then it's not like it's dinner time and we're going to talk about report cards and right. it's not a gathering it's like the whole family works all over the city and they're going to eat i think at some point where every even sleep you go to like parts like vietnam and people are just like sleeping behind the counter of the store they work at because they've been there for a day and a half right because mom can't come in so they're running the store and the sleep is this thing that you get now and then and i think food is like that in a lot of parts of the world like a meal eh uh, the next time I eat will be the next time I eat. When you go to these places, and I know you travel pretty much all over the world, yeah. do you go out of your way to try to sample in as wide a variety as the local cuisine as you can? No. No. Uh, 
depends on where I go. And I'm not that guy who just brings it all from home and I never leave home when I'm abroad. But I can't afford to eat a bad meal and be uh, bedridden. bedridden for the next day when I should be out mm. hitting the streets, looking at stuff. Right. And so I've had, you know, as you do, you run into the bad meal where you're like hugging a tree, watching the arc of vomit, like, wow, Linda Blair. <laughs> and I've done that from here to uh, Myanmar and Russia, wherever I've had some bad meals. And so when the food looks dodgy, like in the interior of Africa, when you point at the meat object and go, what is that? And the guy will say, I think it's goat. <laughs> Cliff Bar, just because I just can't. And so what I've learned to do, and it's hard on your back because it's a lot of weight. I take, say I'm going to be out in Africa for two weeks. I bring about two meals worth of chow with me. That's a lot of nuts, a lot of Cliff Bars, a lot of like peanut butter, you know, things that just don't go bad in heat. Mm -hmm. Um where I can just look at the food and go, nah, no, not tonight. It's going to be a handful of almonds and this and water. Also, in parts of the world where water's dodgy, you find a store, you buy the box of water, rip it open to make sure it hasn't been tampered with, buy the whole box, put it in your backpack, and lug 40 pounds of water for the next five days. It sucks, mm. but you you can't be somewhere and go like I I'm thirsty and I don't know about that water because that you could go about south bringing, on you. You know they have these portable backpack filters and steri pens and things that a lot of uh, backpack hikers they use. Uh, they're they're very small now. They're very small and lightweight. And you can get some like if you're staying in a place and you think it has dodgy water, you can get a, a gravity filter where <gasps> you put water. Like you could literally get rainwater from outside in a puddle, and I know right. a lot of people do that. And they take it and they put it in this large gravity filter and it'll drip down, almost like it looks like someone's peeing at the bottom of this huge bag, like a 60 right. liter bag of water. But it filters it all, and it allows you to drink basically puddle water. Right. No, I've never gotten that high tech. I've I've. I've been in some pretty dodgy places, but I've always been somewhere in prep, like a city before I go into the countryside, mm -hmm. where I go, okay, it's going to be five days before I see anything like this again. So I'm provisioning for eight days. That's of a good water. thing, but, you should, but Google SteriPen. You should get one of these things because this this thing is so so simple. It's like it basically looks like a pen, and it works with ultraviolet light. And you put it in water, like say if you have a glass of water, you just stir this into water. It kills everything in the water, huh. everything. Wow. Yeah, it'll still like if it's if there's but there it is right there. So if there's buffalo piss in that no, water, it's That's still smart. gonna smell like buffalo piss. Yeah, but it won't but it's kill not you. gonna kill you, and it won't give you giardia, and it won't give you anything else. Wow, that's smart. Yeah, and it's not big. It's a small little device. You see it there? No, it's handheld. Yeah. I get it. These, those are drops. Oh, that's smart. Yeah, that I think just that's put a it different in your backpack. thing. Yeah, yeah, because uh, there's parts of like mainly Africa where you go really in. Mm -hmm. The water, like that's a lot of mosquitoes. Sketchy. Oh, yeah, and sketchy. you see the locals drinking, Whoa. like clearing the larva out of the way. I'm like, don't oh, do that. Like, Christ. what do you mean? That's that's our water. My good friend Justin Wren, he runs a charity called Fight for the Forgotten, where they build wells for the pygmies in the Congo. Yeah. And he's had malaria three times oh, from going yeah. over there. Yeah, and yeah. he's he's a he's a beautiful human being. Like this guy sacrifices so much. He's in the Congo several months out of every year. It's a tough place. I mean, it's wells. very dangerous. It is very dangerous, and yeah. you know he's got some crazy stories about it too. But oh, I bet you know these people. They like you see little children with horrible distended bellies because they're filled with parasites and. 
It's heartbreaking. A lot of it is clean water. And so they're developing. They're, they're initially partnered up with Water 4. Now he's kind of doing it all on his own. But And through this, one of my sponsors is called the Cash App. And through the Cash App, they, they we've already raised thousands of dollars to build several wells in the Congo. And we're constantly like raising more money and building more wells. And, you know, it changes their life. They have f- yeah. free, actual, clear water that comes out of the ground. You see these people celebrating and dancing when the wells get turned on. You're like, this is so powerful. You just think of water as like, oh, hey, here's some water. I got yeah. a bottle. But to them, it's it's everything. Yeah, I, I've been working on and off with a water NGO for many years called Drop in the Bucket. And I've been to Uganda and South Sudan with them. They drill at schools. And... You know, as a Westerner, water is just that thing we sing in the shower with. You know, it's just like it's always around. You know, you trip over the bottles. There's so much water. Right. Um, in other parts of the world, as you know, not so much. And when you when you see the impact of water on a school, there's so many things you don't think about. And so I was at this one school uh, where they had drilled, drop in the bucket, had drilled like before, and we were there to visit the well and meet, meet the kids uh, in Masaka. It's, uh, I think, north of Kampala. And... What one of the drop in the bucket people said is like they now have toilets and running water. Do you understand what that means for female literacy? I'm like, what do you mean? A woman, a girl hits a certain age. She goes through a major, major physiological change. If there's not running water in a way for her to clean herself up, there's a lot of potential shame and self-consciousness. You stop going to school because there's not a way to keep yourself together. And you stop, your learning stops at young adulthood. But with running water and a way to, you know, as we Westerners just do so, you know, easily, you keep yourself uh, hygienic and you can go back to class and learn to read. And I was like, I I never would have thought of that had I not come on this trip. And it hit me like a truck. Because you just think, water, I'm thirsty. Water means so much more. Just dignity. Like, I want to be clean. You and me, we throw our clothes in the laundry every day. Clean clothes. I mean, you see these women walking eight miles each way with the jerry cans of water. Some of that's for drinking. A lot of it's for cleaning clothes because they're sending their kid to a school. They want the kid, you know, human dignity. Water and all of that is a big, you know, you you can't have dignity without the water because water means I don't stink. Right. And you must take me, you must respect me as a person because I don't smell like I've been living in these clothes for a week. And um, I learned a lot of that by traveling, but traveling with that NGO was a, you know, like going to class. It was huge. Yeah, man, that's, that that's, yeah, that's something I never would have considered. Yeah. And, that- and human dignity, you know, you, you, it's why we have a lot of angry people in the world because you and I, as Westerners, we don't suffer. There's a lot of indignities that we don't suffer that a lot of people in the world work hard to not suffer. Like they have to go like, okay, have to go get the water today. You know, that's a long, long trip. Got to walk to Long Beach and back to get the water because there's no tap. And I got kids and, you know, infants. And I, I got to make this work because I can't have my family stinking and I got to do the cooking. And hopefully you don't get eaten by a crocodile when and, you go to get the water. Or attacked by a monkey. The, yeah. the monkeys, they smell the water and they, they mug you for the water. Really? Yeah. Um, they just assault you, you know, bite and they grab the water, knock it over and just lick it off the ground. Yeah, people get assaulted in dry season by monkeys. Wow. Yeah. So these... Little creeps. <laughs> but just you, you see what people do. They're not trying to be rock stars. All they want to do is what you and I do. Just 
without even thinking twice. And that, you know, it's made me, as an older guy, I'm pushing 60, it's made me really reconsider human relationships, like our current political climate, the way people talk to each other now. It's, it's sometimes kind of terrifying. And it makes me really reconsider human dignity, respect, patience. Like there's a lot of people I, I disagree with, but they're coming from something real, like something very real and honest propelled them to make that sign or to do that thing. And the, the cause and effect, I think they're maybe wrongheaded, but the cause is real and the effect is sincerely the action is sincerely held, the, the motivation. And it's that kind of travel and looking how, looking how people, they don't want much. They just want to get by, by and large. And um, it's made me reconsider kind of how I voulez-vous with everyone out in the world. I'm, I think I'm getting better at it because it's so hard. It is hard, but I, I think if you pay attention to it and you keep concentrating on it as you get older, you do get better at it. And the idea that someone who's almost 60 is still learning, like that is just how we are, you know, and we have this weird idea that people are static and they, they you know, you, you meet a guy and he's 70. When you meet him when he's 75, he's going to be the same guy, if not worse. Right. But no, people, they're capable of growth as long as they're alive. Yeah. And, and motivated. I yeah. mean, you'll, you'll grow as much as you want to. Yes. And I, I've met, 70 year olds who wear me out i'm like i can't keep up with this right. guy like i go on some little cool eco travel trips you go like antarctica and these old like come on you're like i can't you go to take a photo <laughs> or show it to me. <laughs> and then you meet people who are 22 and they're so burned out yeah and they're so hard to be around like man if i had your youth i'd be like bouncing off the planet what are you doing and it's just a mindset and you know all kinds of surrounding factors and forces but it's really just what you want to do at a certain part of your life. I have very little sympathy for adults in that you're 35. This is all you, pal. Your addictions, your crap marriage, that's all you. Yeah. Like, I don't have that much. Well, I did so much coke, I don't have a house anymore. That's a lot of coke. <laughs> and I'm sorry that you're living in a box or in a van down by the river. But come on, man. That's a long hill you slid down. Yeah. So get up and don't do it. Don't make the same mistake. But adults, come on, man. You, you know who you are at this point. And you, you know what you can be. And at this point, I, I abhor rudeness. I hate it. And, it's, and I hate it when I'm rude. I'm like, damn, I right. have to punish myself. Yeah. And so I, I, as I get older, I'm working as best as I can to be more clear, to be more polite and more patient, just so I'm more... It, unavoidable like on stage i don't curse so really? there's no way you can marginalize me even what you're doing your your live speaking shows where you're having these discussions and you're talking about crazy things that you've seen you don't swear how many times have i sworn in this room with you right now on that today i don't think you have i haven't i keep track why is that um many years ago uh almost 10 years ago i was uh going out with a woman who never cursed and I, I work with people who don't curse, and I, they, you, they get their point across. And I, this girl I was going out with, she's fantastic, and she never cursed. And my sailor speak, I was like, wow, I don't have any company here. <laughs> and also Barack Obama and presidents you know, traditionally don't curse. 
But he's had such a good way with words. I just admired him on the stump. I'm sure it was all written for him. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, I, I just like how, he, how the man carried himself. And I said, I want to be more like that. And I was just in Australia a couple of weeks ago. I was speaking, and I was on a very interesting panel about Me Too. I was the only male on the panel. It's fascinating. And a, a guy came up with his kids, like, hey, I'm a big fan, and I want my kids to meet you. And my son's 11, and I want him to come see one of your shows one day. And I said, oh, I think he should see me on my next tour here in 2020. When he'll be like, what, 13? No problem. And I'm not saying my show is Namby Pamby, but... I want to be unavoidable where you mm. can't write me off, say I'm wrong. Fine. Disagree right. with me. That That's fine. Like, oh, he's just a foul mouth. So we don't have to take him seriously. I don't want to give you that handle to jerk me around mm. by. I have a plenty of other handles you can jerk right. me around by. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm just trying to not give people that angle. And it forces me to evolve my point of view uh, where those words are fun and hyperbolic but they just don't not ser- they don't serve me. Right. They don't get across what I want to get across. That's interesting. Yeah. Um I would think that you're probably best but well, you should do it any way you want, but what I'm what I'm thinking is that what one way to use those words is to have your point as clear as possible and then use them rarely. You know, like one of the things when I was starting doing comedy back in Boston, they would do, they would call it the fuck meter. They would say, you don't want to go on stage and say fuck every other word because a lot of people use the word fuck in place of the word um. You know, they're like, fucking guy, this fucking says to me, fucking, I don't want to fucking tell you what to fucking do. That is, you're just, this is just poor communication. This is a a shitty economy of words. So that word, you've given it, you've used it so many times. You've given away all its meaning. It doesn't mean anything anymore. So when you do, and I'm like, fuck you. It doesn't mean anything anymore. Yeah, but if you say it like once a year, it does. Right. If you say fuck you once a year, it means a lot. Everyone will believe it. Yes. (laughs) Like, oh, he's serious. But yeah, if you just drop it all the time, and I, you know, I believe in the First Amendment. But um, to me, it's a, when you use that stuff, you you come in as one thing, but everyone, you kind of, Re, the result is you're something else to well, a lot of people in in front of some people's eyes. Yeah, I mean you, you certainly limit your uh, digestibility. Yeah, and impact. You know, I, I'd rather be articulate than overbearing. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I watch the news, and some of these pundits are very, very educated, and they're very, very sharp. They're pundits for a living. They com they make commentary for a living, and they're damn good at it. And you're like, wow, that's a hell of a sentence. I, mm. I'd like to be able to rock something like that one day. <laughs> and um, that's that's kind of what I admire as, uh, you know, I start shrinking with age. <laughs> well, as you when you're, you know, it's interesting the the difference between writing something and saying something. It's like as you do your spoken word uh, shows and you have these stories that you want to tell. But I would imagine that you probably write out a good most of it do you do that some of it i mean or do you some of it you just know the story so you just tell the story the way when i'm out in the world i'll be out all day like taking photos or whatever voulez vooing with the locals getting information then i come back somewhere and i write it up or i'll take you know sometimes you're in a place like haiti you don't want to be outside at noon the sun will just like beat you up so you find shade make your notes so i'm always trying to make notes and then at night i write it all up a lot of that turns into a book. Like I use every part of the deer. Like when mm-hmm. I go somewhere, I, I, I make soup, right. jewelry, 
a coat, every part gets used. And so um, the books come from that, but some stories from those travels, I, I mold them over in my mind. And I, I, the, the show for me, when I'm on stage, it just can't be mere reportage. There has to be something, there has to be an aroma coming from it. There has to be a, a lilt. There has to be a, a something that, a wisdom or some kind of melody that comes from the raw information. Like I took all these notes and got the Houses of the Holy album, which is just, it's component parts, but it was mixed together in a way where it's like this beautiful thing. And so that often takes weeks. Where like, so I, I saw this, what was the story? Well, the guy fell over and, but no, it wasn't. At six weeks of thinking about it, it wasn't him. He's not the story. It's the guy who was watching and did nothing. That's the story. Mm. And all of a sudden, the whole angle changes. And so I'll mull these things over because I have a lot of time. I live alone. And so by the time a story gets to the stage, it's like a stone that's been rolled and polished. Mm. Uh, and I, I will, there's parts of the valley, Ventura Boulevard, where at night there's nothing but dog walkers and joggers. All the shops are closed. I will park in a parking lot and I'll walk uh, about a mile each way, talking out loud, saying the stories out loud. People are going to go looking for you now. Yeah. Henry's practicing his one-man show. That's why I don't give the location, because you will go, wow, I remember that one. Um, And I will let my brain hear my voice say them, and I'll make edits while I'm walking. Like, okay, no, that's a dead end. And, and And I've been doing this for years. And I do it on the treadmill in my mind. You know, like I'll just like kind of mumble to myself where people will come over in a gym like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm just, you know. Just say actor, and they'll go, oh, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, and, and that, that's the kind of preparation I do because I don't believe in warm-up shows. Like, who wants to see your warm-up show? Like, oh, thanks for your demo. Like, screw you. I paid money. I right. want A game. And so I, I only understand come in with the A game. And so I do all my woodshedding alone. And so by the time I hit stage, it's that story is very evolved. And then it continues to every night. You know, I keep shaving yeah. the parts off, and it, it's a chiseled thing of beauty a few nights in. Yeah, I found that you really can only do so much on the written page or on the screen. You have to evolve it in front of a live audience, especially with stand-up, so. which you're essentially doing. You Pretty you, much. You're doing very—I mean, I listen to a bunch of your older stuff, and it's essentially a form of stand-up, you know? Yep. It's like it, well, there's different kinds of music, right? I mean, there's rock and roll, there's blues, there's jazz. There's different kinds of stand-up as well. Sure. And yours is a storytelling stand-up. Yeah. And, and even and with that, it, it, it's going to evolve in front of the live audience. Well, like on my Showtime special, Tomorrow, oh, night, tomorrow at 10, night at 10 p.m. On Showtime, on yeah. Showtime. You'll hear stories. And it's that's, called Keep Talking, pal. It, it is. And a lot of that is just storytelling. And it is funny. I mean, but I, I always leave room... In my uh, resume, because I don't want to tie myself to comedy, because when I'm telling the story about the the the, the part of uh, wherever I would like Bangladesh I was in that wasn't funny, I don't want to be in a comedy club with some guy going, "Wait a minute, I didn't pay for this. Make me laugh, idiot!" And so I don't want to be selling a false uh, a bill of goods. And so uh, sometimes it's quite often it's funny, but sometimes it's not. But for me, events plus time, if someone didn't, if there are no casualties, if it was this mere injury, maybe an eye, um, it is pretty funny. <laughs> a week later, after the scabs have fallen off, uh, 
it's pretty funny. Well, the thing is also that you don't have a restricted sort of form in which you have to perform in. By doing it spoken word style, you essentially can do whatever you want. Yes, and I need that freedom because yeah. I, I can't be dependent upon to make you laugh all the time. Right, yeah. Like the, this is the thing about stand-up is it, part of it I really like because it forces you to use economy of words and boil your ideas down into this very clear rhythm where you really keep hammering them with laughs. But part of it is, uh, I mean, and where I get my freedom is from this, like from doing podcasts. like So I can express myself in ways and get thoughts across where it doesn't have to have any form. It can be right. funny or it can be not. It can be depressing or funny yeah. and sad. Or and it doesn't have to happy. realize itself in 11 seconds. Yes. Right. And it doesn't have to have an impact. Like, there's a thing about stand-up is that you're always getting a reaction. And if you don't get that reaction, it is not successful. You can call it whatever you want. You can say, oh, this is stand-up, but, you know, I'm talking about stand-up or I'm talking about things that are tragic in my stand-up so it's deeper and more meaningful. It's like, okay. But then it's not really stand-up. You know, stand-up is funny. Yeah. And once it stops being funny, then you're doing something else. You know, right. you're doing spoken word or you're doing a, a play or a one-person show or whatever it is. Right. And I would never dare go into a comedy club and do what I do. You never do that? You never go to, like, to an improv or something like that? Two times in my life. One time, the venue I was supposed to be in got knocked out because of a storm. And so they said, we've moved your show to like the laugh dungeon. And I was in <laughs> some place in the East Coast with like 80,000 headshots on the wall. Ah. That little parquet stage, the PV boxes, the PA screwed into the wall. And I did my talking show. And my audience are all sitting at these tables going, why are we here? And on the last big tour in 2016, I don't like nights off. And they said, okay, Thanksgiving. I said, find me a show. They said, we found you a show. It's a comedy club next to a strip bar, and there's no backstage. There's no monitors. There's just two boxes in the wall, family-owned, really nice people. And I forget where it was, somewhere in Illinois. I was uh, one show, one night. My, my tour bus was rumbling away in the parking lot. The next night, I think it was like three nights of Ralphie May, the, the, the great <laughs> comedian. But it was a straight-up comedy club. And I went in there and I just kind of did what I've been doing for like the last nine months on the road. And a lot of it was very funny. And the audience was fantastic. And so the owner, I came up to the owner and said, I I'd play this place again anytime. Thank you so much. And he said, well, you know where we are anytime. We loved it. We like you. And you're always welcome here. And that, I don't know if it was my audience or a comedy audience. I said, how did the show do? He's like, oh, it's sold out in a day. I mean, you know, your, your name. And um, I think, but um, this is, I, but I said, so the audience, he goes, oh, I recognize these people. This is my mm. local comedy crowd. Yeah. They're just, they just know you from Sons of Anarchy or whatever. Mm. So we'll see how you go. And it was fine. And it turned into like this two-hour laugh riot. It, I mean, it was just great. It was a super fun and show. And you don't have an opening act or anything. You just go right out. No. Because I torture them enough. Yeah. It's just me. <laughs> Can I ask you a professional question? Sure. Feel free to edit this out. When you're on stage and like you're doing like a big theater, like where you're the main guy, like a big Saturday night somewhere, how long are you on stage for? Usually an hour and 10 to an hour and 20 minutes. Okay. 70 to 80 minutes. Yeah. Okay. I was fascinated because I, I live in a bubble. I just do mm -hmm. my own thing. I'm on stage for like two hours and 40 minutes. It's, I bring uh, an opening act. Um, and how, what do they do? Between 20 and 30. 
And how many openers? One. Sometimes I bring two. That's rare, but it's usually just for fun. So just two it'll buddies. be two people at the most, yeah. and they'll do a total of 40 minutes, and then there's yes. a what, brief intermission no, before no you come on? No, no intermission. They, they so just bring like me on. One, two, three. Yeah, bang, 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 we go. And the show could be 80 minutes, 90 minutes. And so the whole yeah. thing, you and two, two openers, hours. it's like two point something hours. It could be two hours, yeah, easily, yeah. But that's the whole night. That's and, the whole night. And are you ever on your own with nobody? Never. Okay, so there's always an opener, yes. usually one. Yes. And so that's 20 minutes and 70 to 80. So the whole night is a little less than two hours. Depending upon the show, whether or not we have two shows in a night, a short show is an hour and a half, which I, I like a rock'em, sock'em, robots hour and a half, like a movie. You go to a movie and it's two and a half hours. Even if it's really good, it's like, whoa. Oh, no, no, you feel a lot it. Of sitting the last there. 20 minutes, yeah. you really feel the lack of editing. But- an hour and a half is bang, 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 bang. Good night. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and so they get how it. many two night two sets a night do you do? Often. Yeah, I'll do a it. A seven and a nine or Yeah, whatever. something like that. I'll do it pretty often, depending on the size of the venue. You know, some places is a giant place. I'll do one show or, you know, but I've done, I've done a lot of, especially this last year, I did a lot of two shows a night in big theaters and stuff, you know. Huh. It's a lot of turnaround too, because you got to clear out all those people sure. and get a new crowd in there. I just, you know, I, I work alone, right? And I don't have a peer group really. If I do, I'm not trying to find them. And I, I'm just curious about how other people do their thing, because I live alone in a tour bus, like with you know, a yeah. road manager and a bus driver and a merch guy, and I have no opener. Except in Australia, there's a rule they want one for one. And so there's this opener I've used for years. You An really, Australian opener? Yeah. They want one American, one Australian, which I really like. They, they used to do that with music. You, you know, have, they don't do that with me. When I'm there, I bring American openers. Oh, well, they um, with me, the last few years, like I've gotten to bigger places. And my agent has said, okay, you're going to have an opener. And I've met, I've used this guy, used him. He's, he's done like shows with me for like three tours. He's hilarious, really low key. He's a really nice name? guy. I'm forgetting. <laughs> well, I, I see the guy every three years, so right. it's not in the memory. But he's great, and he's he's super funny. He's real smart, and the audience loves him. I mean, I think he's kind of known, but he's great, and he does like I don't know, twenty minutes, whatever mm -hmm. it is, and then right. I go do my thing. But that's per. It's not in every city in Australia. It's like in a couple of places. Oh, so there's and it's like, like some kind of thing. Regional rules. Yeah, and it's happened a few times. With when I would do music, like okay, four guys on stage, we're gonna have a four person opener, like okay, man, and I kind of like that. Like, give the local band some time, or give mm -hmm. the local guy a moment in front of his hometown audience, or let him tour with me. I, I love that idea, but that's the only time. And or every once in a while, I was at Bonnaroo once, and it was tremendously lopsided. It was me and Tig Nataro, who's amazing. I don't know her very well, but I, I've seen her on stage. And she was kind of, she didn't exactly open for me, but she did like half an hour and I did like an hour. It was like, and they cleared the tent and then uh, uh, Cheech Marin came on. But uh, Louis Black was before me. It was like three sh tent loads of people in one night at Bonnaroo. Mm. And that's the only time I've ever done a 
and every once in a while be the festival where you're like the 8 to 9.30 guy and then right. the, the 10 o'clock guy comes on stage. But quite often I'm just on my own on tour and I'm the only thing on stage. It's a different thing for me. I, I have to have my friends with me. Otherwise I get bored. Like I want, like I go on the road, like almost everyone I take on the road with me is a national headliner who right. would normally be headlining somewhere on their own. Like they're so not- So it's a cool double bill. Yeah, yeah, it's a cool double bill, but it's also, I want- the best guys that I can find and I pay them well to go on in front of me. I don't I don't want it to be a bad show by any stretch of the imagination. So I try to get the best guys, but also by that, then I'm traveling with the best guys. So we're having fun. Like we're, you know, it's it's a it's a weird group. Like stand-ups, there's not that many of us. There's right. like maybe a thousand of us in the whole country that are like real professional comedians, maybe 500 headliners in the whole country. So there's there's just not that many of us, and so when we we relate to each other in sort of a, a weird way. Yeah, well, there's not many of you. Yeah, it's like when presidents get together. There's yeah. like four of them. They all right. they're kind of chummy because yeah. they might be opposed, but they all kind of know they're the only people who know that stuff. Especially when they're out. Especially when they're out, they yeah. did their time. And yeah, they, they can relax, and they just look like they've been sucked dry by a vampire. That's. Well, I noticed when the, the when Obama welcomed the president elect Trump to the Oval Office for that ninety minute meeting that Trump thought was going to last fifteen minutes. Obama looked like Tutankhamun. He just like yeah. his like skin was so drawn across his face. It's like a snare drum. Well, he must have been so exhausted. Well, I, I think, think any presidency is going to be just, taken over. Just any president, like George W. Bush was to me a handsome energetic guy when he got into office but 8 years and 911 and in the invasion occupation of Iraq on the way out his face had fallen his hair had died and i i i'm not a guy who hates him just disagrees but the presidency killed that guy. Yeah. I mean, I just think the stress, because you mm -hmm. don't get the nice phone call, hey, the cat, we got the cat out of the right. tree. It's like, hey, we lost eight guys. That thing you said go, uh, it went south. Well, I'm very curious to see how Trump comes out of this, because he's one of the older guys to get in there. I think he's 70 or 71, right? And in just in the past year, like there's a picture of Bush from 2000 and 2008. See what I'm saying? That's crazy. I mean, it just... It kicked his ass. And I'm not trying to put him in the pejorative. Yeah, oh, it's just, re it's just but reality. It's like when you see those really amazing photos of Lincoln during the Civil War mm -hmm. or Lyndon Johnson in those think tank meetings, him in McNamara, his face is sliding off his skull because he's getting those phone calls. Hey, we just lost six, 600 guys, Mr. President. We're really sorry to give you this news because he insisted on getting the bad phone call. And you see what it does to a human being yeah and um i noticed it with bush and obama because those were trying times for both presidents so trying very trying administrations and i wonder what it's going to do to a guy who doesn't take care of himself yeah who is carrying a lot of weight probably nowhere near the best diet and i, I don't i hope he doesn't have some kind of heart attack. I mean, I'm not the kind of guy who wants people to die. He easily could. But, uh, man, you look at him, you're like, man, you need to listen to the White House doctor get on a plan because they can really rock you. They can help you lose 40 pounds by spring of next year, and you can really be feel better. You look at him, you're like, man, there's someone in the White House who can help you with that. Like, they're paid to 
gets you on the track every morning. They could get him up at five in the morning, get him out there, and it's not going to do it. He's got to watch Fox News. Something. He's got to agree or disagree but, um, with those people on the TV. It's too bad because a president has all those people who are like ready. They're already in their jogging outfits, yeah. like a dog who wants to go to the park, waiting to train him. Yeah. And it's um, and a, a dietitian. They could like rock those calories. I don't think he wants it. I don't think he gives a you, shit. Well, you have to. Apparently, want it. He drinks like twelve diet cokes a day. Huh. That's one of the things they were saying. Do you, um, with that wind, that diet window you were talking about, um, when you do eat, are you eating? You have a family. Yeah. Are, is it the dinner table? Yeah. Are you eating at home with with a the lot family? Of times that's that's the meal. Yeah. Is, is your family? Is that meal targeted? Like nutrition for the kids, nutrition for dad. I mean, do you guys eat smart? No, we the kids actually eat very healthy. Yeah, we've been eating together really healthy since they were babies that's all i mean they're always eating vegetables and you know some healthy meat they eat a, a, lot, a lot of wild game because i hunt right you know so they they eat really healthy they have it's an interesting thing with kids too if you if you shield them from interesting foods like my eight-year-old loves kimchi she loves like you know spicy korean fermented cabbage which to a lot of kids would be disgusting she loves it right. she eats like fucking plates of it and because of that, she rarely gets sick. You know, she, she eats a lot of probiotics and healthy foods. So they're always eating fruit and vegetables. They've been doing it since they were a little kid. We don't stop them from eating candy. But I do tell them what candy is, and I showed them that sugar documentary. And I've talked to them in length about how sugar didn't used to be something that people ate all the time. No. And it's a really recent thing. I've showed them photographs of people from like the 1800s and the early 1900s. Like, look what these people looked like. They were thin. They were different. They had a different diet. But now we just eat too many carbohydrates. And it's, it's fine every now and then. Like, don't keep it from yourself. But understand that these are, these are empty calories. Yeah. And they make your body, they actually make you tired. Well, a thing I've noticed, I, I look at people when I travel. I just find our species is fascinating all over the world. You look at people's teeth in parts of the world where sugar and corn syrup is just not normal. And you see like these 75-year-old women like carrying a couch up a hill and their teeth are these bright white tree trunks. Just like <laughs> of like they're never going to fall out of their heads. Right. And like no dentistry. You know, that no noticeable dentistry and the teeth are gleaming white, maybe darkened from tobacco or tea, but nothing like in the West where their right. teeth are just getting assaulted by our own diet. And you see people of great age with like, they look, they're just ripped. And you look at what they're eating, like fish, rice, vegetables. Yeah. And it's all lean, smart food. And the sugars are all... Uh, monosaccharides like fruit sugar mm -hmm. you know the right. occasional banana or orange is a treat yeah. but you know the sugar is really not in the diet at all yeah. maybe and rice breaking should it down be, you, know? you know but not like we are doing it no yeah, no one's ever done it the way we're doing it and no one's ever been as fat yeah. You know, and then we have these things to shield people from. We call it fat shaming. You know, don't tell someone they're fat. Let them just be morbidly obese and go through life at a, a massive risk of heart attack or stroke or diabetes. Don't say anything because then you'll hurt their feelings. Meanwhile, you, you could say something to someone and it might be uncomfortable in the moment. Like, hey, Mike, um, listen, I don't want to be that guy, but you got to lose some weight. And then that guy could go and look in the mirror and go, fuck, 
I really do need to lose some weight. And then they'll lose some weight and they'll be healthy and they'll talk to you four or five months later and go, you know, you fucked my head up that day. And because of that, I really started changing the way I eat and I'm so much healthier and I feel better. Because he's your friend. My friend Tom Segura and and Burt Kreischer, they did this thing last year, well, two years ago, where they they had a weight loss competition. Hmm. And uh, one of the things they they kept doing is fat shaming each other, like ruthlessly. And they would use hashtag Burt is fat, hashtag Tom is fat. And they had this weight loss competition. And they fucking both lost a shitload of weight. I think they both lost between 50 and 60 pounds. Wow. And they looked fucking incredible. But then after it was over, Tom was like, dude, let me tell you something. Fat shaming works. It works. It got me off my ass. I realized I was a fat fuck. And it made me lose weight. It doesn't feel good. That shaming thing is you, like, fat shaming doesn't work on people who aren't fat. Okay, it works on people who have a problem but don't want to address that problem. So you bring up that problem, and then they go, "Oh, you're making me feel bad by thinking about my problem. You're a bad person." Yeah. No, you have a weak spot. That weak spot shouldn't be there. Like, it shouldn't you shouldn't belabor it and constantly ridicule someone for being fat. But the idea that you're never supposed to bring it up, even with someone you care about, even in jest or friends busting balls, like, no, 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 you should bring it up because that that bad feeling is a gift that makes you realize like, oh, my God, I've been remiss. I haven't been paying attention to my own physical sovereignty. You know, I have control over what goes in my body. I have control over the, the, the amount of calories I take in, the kind of calories. I have control over how much body fat I'm carrying around. And there's ways to fix it. Yeah, I think you should uh, use discretion. Yes, and should like, be maybe not be in line at the supermarket. No, <laughs> and to, to people you'd like. Yeah, and you know it's just. But it was funny that, to hear Tom just—he was getting angry. He's like, "Fucking fat shaming works, man! All these people that say don't fat shame, fuck! That's how I got skinny. Fat shaming works. Yeah, until you. But you know, like, again, yes. Don't be rude to someone out in public for no reason. Don't drive an eleven-year-old to suicide. Yeah, definitely don't do that. But yeah. so yeah, I. But well, the it, little kids is the worst because like their parents will get them hooked on those sugary sodas, and once it's the goddamn sodas, man. I mean, that is one of the primary causes for people being fat in this country, and it just seems so innocuous. It's just in a glass. I'll just drink this. It's got some ice cubes. No big deal. It goes down so fast. Yeah, it tastes great uh, on the weekends. Um, I I like ginger beer mm. and the, the the Bundaberg's. It's the same power as a Coke. I mean, it's a lot of sugar. Yeah. And I I uh, buy a four pack and I have one bottle a week. Saturday night, my big drink. Like woo, <laughs> discipline. He's going nuts. Look at him. He's got his drink. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. It's just the best tasting stuff. But man, it tastes good for a reason. It's so sweet. And like you just want the next one when you're done. But man, I, I, and I could drink them all day, but yeah. I just can't do that to my system. So I do one a week. That's good discipline. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, you know, you something to look forward to. Do you have a diet that you follow other than that? Yeah. I mean, I, I love ice cream, so I, I don't eat it. Um, you know, I, I try <laughs> not to because I just, my body is slowed down with age. I just can't shed pounds. But I've never really had a weight problem. I, I've never like, oh, oh, I gotta like lose thirty pounds. I've just, I don't. My metabolism is such where I'm always kind of like a greyhound, like always kind of nervous. And well, you're always working out as well. Yeah, right? you but never I really also have. I'm always kind of like doing something. Yeah, and just kind of uptight, kind of nervy. Well, you talked the last time you were about the fact that your parents had you on Ritalin from the time you were a really small boy. Yeah. 
Do you think that just like wired you in a certain be. way? I, I don't know, but I, I mean, I would need a doctor to tell me, but it was a, it's not a subtle drug, especially yeah. when you're a little kid. But I try and eat as clean as I can because more energy, more less need for sleep and not feeling so bad all the time mentally, like not feeling right. like oh, I don't want to do anything. With a good diet, I, my, I feel better better mentally and like i said before i've been struggling with trying to feel okay not i don't even need to feel good i just want to be neutral right not just like huh, not in okay, deficit okay to be here that's yeah. all i want yeah not asking for much and good i found a good diet really really rocks that where i feel when i do the bad meal like a depression meal, like tons of carbs. For like a day later, I'm just like, oh man, I'm feeling every bite of that. And so I don't want to feel like that. So I'm like, nope, can't do that because it's just not worth it. So what kind of food do you eat? Like what's a typical meal for you? Uh, today I had a salad with some chopped up chicken with a low calorie dressing on it and a cup of coffee. And tonight, I'm going to have a glass of carrot juice with a splash of beet juice and probably a cup of half a cup of coffee. The other half of the cup I started this That's morning. That's your dinner? Yeah, I already— So it's basically the salad with the chicken is your, your yeah, whole I'll, day. Yeah, I'll eat tomorrow. Wow. I'll be good and hungry tomorrow. If I'm feeling like I can't sleep, I'm distracted from hunger, I've got some peanuts in my room and I'll have some, a handful of peanuts. See, very clean. I don't what know you, what that drinking, means. You eat very clean by that time. Oh, 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 I thought very clean was like some kind of thing. No, no, no. no. no I, I try and eat clean because I have found I get great results with it. Like it is no joke. It totally works. And I, as we do in our line of work, I got a lot of stuff coming up. A lot of stuff. I, you know, I got a TV show, a lot of shows, a lot of a, a, a couple of speeches. I got a, a teaching a class at UCLA. What well, one day coming what is up? That? November. But what are you I, teaching? Uh, they just want me to talk about music and culture, and mm -hmm. I just got asked to talk about change at another place. And I have a bunch of shows coming up from here to Kiev, Ukraine, and just a lot of marks I got to hit. It's just what I do, and so I'm basically. Getting ready to walk out of the house until about Christmas and be hitting marks and not screwing up day after day, night after night. And so diet is a lot goes into that prep hmm. big time. Well, that I mean, it makes sense. If you if you're demanding that much out of your body, you really don't want your body struggling with shitty nutrition. I can't afford it. Like I, I, I my car can't go off the road. I can't fail. I'm going to be screwing up. Like if I hit that set, I'm going to be on a TV show soon. I can't not know the lines. I can't be tired. I can't look like I haven't slept. I got to be a game. Do you take any vitamins or supplements or anything like that? I try and I forget and then they go stale. I, I You know, <laughs> I have the, the five lined up. Uh, my friend Heidi said, okay, here, here. And I got into it and I, you know, eventually they get put in the cupboard and mm -hmm. I, and then you look at I'm like, oh, three years ago. Whoops. Yeah. And so, um, that's why I do like the carrot and beet juice, just mm -hmm. so that those Fresh. kind of vitamins are coming through. And I do that like almost every day. I just like the way it tastes too. Um, but no, I, I can't, I've never been able to stick with it. I just forget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you ever had anything that you like took that gave you great benefits? I never noticed. No, just the only thing I've ever noticed is restorative sleep for just general 
concentration and well-being. And the cleaner I eat, the better I feel. Caffeine, I don't know if I get jumped up on it. I can't tell. And so as, as far as anything I've ever done, working out is an antidepressant. Good diet is an antidepressant and makes me a more efficient wake when I'm awake. Other than that, like I don't, I've never taken cod fish oil or whatever and said, wow, my joints feel better. Mm -hmm. I've just, maybe I'm just, I'm not aware enough or I'm not expecting it to work. So I, I have no thing I can hold up and go, this, this really helped me. Besides physical fitness, getting the work done, like you want to alleviate anxiety before an audition, rehearse, go in prepared. And then there's nothing to be worried about because you can't wait to show the guy what you got. Right. And so preparation, good diet, and and finishing the thing so you can really clear the deck. Those are the things. Because for me, my whole life is don't be depressed. I, I work so hard not to feel bad. A lot of what I do is to not feel really bad. It's interesting that you've chosen to do this in a, a non-pharmaceutical way, like specifically you've like, you have strategies. I'm just afraid of it. Yeah. I just don't believe that someone I don't know can come up with a drug that's going to work for my unique little mind. <laughs> and I've seen people on antidepressants. I said, so how's that working for you? Like, I think I'm losing my mind. <sighs> I, I've been doing this for three months and I don't know who I am right now. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I have that problem anyway, so I don't want uh, any pharmaceuticals to enhance that. I'm just basically afraid. That's a legitimate concern. Yeah, I, I think the brain is real fragile. And I'm not one of those types who say all medication is bad. I'm not that. I just, anything having to do with the brain, I'd rather just deal with what I got. Right. And use these more kind of on the ground ideas. Like I'll just sweat a lot. Yeah. I'm going to do a lot of pull-ups. And whenever I do all like, like a ton of push-ups or like get on the stationary bike or whatever, I do feel better. Yeah. And when I eat the lean fish salad, you know, the salmon and the spinach, I do feel better. I feel great. Yeah. Um, and that's that's good enough for me. Yeah, you've got successful strategies. They you, were they working work. for me. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when you're, you I mean, you do so many different things. At, at this point of your life, do you have, like, specific goals that you set out for the year or you where you would like to be a year from now or do you just do things that are really interesting to you and just pursue them with passion and just let the chips fall where they may i do that and i don't have a goal like at at 65 i want to be here i have no idea right. where i'll be I'm, I'm trying to get ready for 2019 i have no plans yet i'm just hoping for a lot of work um I don't have those kind of long-range plans. Unfortunately, I'm a short-ranged to no-ranged person, and a lot of my motivation is vengeance. And I know that <laughs> revenge and vengeance are synonyms. Right. However, the fact that revenge has re in it, like you do this, I do that. Right. Vengeance is just like the uh, difference between aggression and hostility. Were you aggro? No. I'm hostile. What does that mean? <laughs> Wham with the ashtray. That's hostility. Right. Like, you just hit me. Yes, but I'm not aggressive. I just like watching you bleed. <laughs> and so. <laughs> That's so ridiculous. <laughs> right. And I'm not saying it makes sense. I know. And so I don't believe in tit for tat. Mm -hmm. I believe in tit tat. Watch me just jump 
up and down right. and just break it all. But you want to prove yourself. Yes. This is a, is a primary motivation And for so I wake up every day wanting to get back at every teacher, every guy at school, every bad boss, who whatever parent irked me. And like every day, I out everything you, man. And that's why like, hey, it's four in the morning. You want to work? Yeah. Like I'll work in a snowstorm. Like, as, you know, someone I know, like they go on vacation, I'm like have a nice vacation. And every day you're getting tan. I'm not quitting. Like, it's ridiculous. It's I'm an 11 year old. It's in it's it's so juvenile <laughs> and it's it's not cool, but it. It's I don't, fuel in some way. I don't spray paint your house. Right. I'm, not, I'm not flattening your tire. I'm just right. working. And when someone goes, oh, I didn't get up early enough and get, how'd you get it? five of those? Because I got up at three and I stood outside and I ate this rat tail and I climbed the wall and I got it. And I got two of them. And um, because, <laughs> so you could have none. <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm so mad. And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to get somewhere by stepping on you to use you right. as a ladder rung. But you, you cling to this. This is not something you ever plan on abandoning. It's the corner I come fighting out of. It's my true north. Is like, oh yeah, all Fuck right. Fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, it really works. And it's not like I'm not. I would never cheat someone out of something or steal from them. But um, whoever gets up earlier is going to get it. Then I just won't sleep tonight. <laughs> My anger will keep me awake. What, what are you having for dinner? This. <laughs> I mean, that, and that's all I need. Like you right. say, I can't. Like, then I'll just sit up all night. To Because to, that's all I need. But who are these people? Like when you say, you say I can't. Does yeah. anybody really say you can at this point in time? Or no, do you have to manufacture my these people? Oh, yeah. I totally manufacture. Are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. So you have these people in your head. It's, Henry, you're a loser. Oh, I'm a loser. Oh, well, what the fuck are you? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 And, and, and this this doesn't mean I'm walking over to hit somebody. No, no, no. I don't, I don't, I'm not looking to get beat up. I'm just... Uh, Motivating I'm, yourself. Yeah. And I don't have a... I don't have a bunch of, I don't have an entourage. I'm just, all I got is me. So I get the pom-poms out. Go, go, push them back, push them back. All I got is me. I'm up in my office, you know, like at four in the morning, just like, okay, I'm on Australian jet lag. I'm going to make it work. I've been up since 1.30. I'm going to work for 16 hours. And I do. Why? Because I'm mad at it. Do I need to write another book? Probably not. Must I? Yes, I must. <laughs> I must put that into the world. And so you create these people that are telling you you can't do it. Or the world tells me I can't. The world. And I make money. I never count it. The accountant does. I, I just, we talk a few times a year. You just make sure it's coming in. I just say, um, am I doing anything horribly wrong? And she'll say, it, well, from your receipts, it doesn't look like you eat very much, but you sure seem to like records. Are you eating those? <laughs> um, but past that. I just book it, put me in there. Like, uh, here's five shows. Can I have five more? So I don't really count. I, I want to do well. I want to pay my bills and I don't want to lose my house. I want to keep eating and filling the car with gasoline and going to the grocery store. But I, I'm not just trying to, hey, I got a lot of money. I can hang around. I, right. I, I got some money and excuse me, I really got to go. We still drive that boring car. The Mazda 6 yeah. still keeps getting me from A to B. <laughs> yeah, super boring, but damn, does it keep starting up. Yeah. Got me here. I love Japanese cars. 
I got it because uh, Heidi said, um, you're getting this car. The, oh. the, the other car I had, they took from me. They? I, well, the powers that be. Um, <laughs> I was the voice of Infinity Car for about five years. Ah. And they give you a new car every year. And Ooh. that's a good car. Wow, that's nice. A, that's a great car. I had one of those big Q trucks, those Q mm -hmm. whatever they are. They're great. Yep. And it's the car of the future. And um, when the contract finally came to an end, they said, okay, we'll come and get the car. This is a perfect example, Joe. We'll come and get the car in 30 days. I went, no, come and get it tomorrow morning. Screw you. Screw your car. And I said wow. to Heidi, because she's the brains, I said, I need a new car. She goes, you're getting a Mazda 6. It's going to be blue, and I'm picking the interior. Get in my car. We Why didn't you just get an Infinity? You're driving them forever. They, they didn't paid want, you. They, they didn't want me anymore. Wow. I mean, all good things come to an end. Wow, double you, fingers. You don't want me anymore? <laughs> and we went, to the, we went to the lot, and two hours later, I parked the Mazda 6 next to the Infinity that got taken while I was on the set of a TV show the next morning. Mm. And I drove my new car to the set. And I, it's kind of shit compared to the Infinity, though, isn't it? It's a different kind of ride. It makes you, <laughs> it makes you very humble because you you floor right. it, and the nine gerbils go, "Come on, we're working!" And the sunflower seeds fall yeah. out, and you, every other car passes you, and you're like, "Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm coming!" And uh, yeah, you get used to a nice ride. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's um, and, and that was that. She said, uh, "You know what? You, we'll take a couple of days. I'll, I'll go. No, new car right now." But that's my question. Like, you, you can afford morning. a really nice car. I mean, you work really hard. Yep. Like, do you take any compensation, or do you? Do yes. You, do you have any like happiness that you derive from buying something? I, I, mean, have I know a, you. I have a really good ridiculous stereo. stereo. Yeah, we yeah. talked about that's it last it. time you were here. Your giant speakers. But, yeah. That, that, but that's... don't you want a car that has a crazy stereo as well? Nah. I just go to Trader Joe's and auditions. And to the Joe Rogan podcast. <laughs> no, I, I live a really utilitarian life. Mm -hmm. Like in L.A. when I'm off the road. You don't even wear a watch. No, I use the phone. Yeah. Um, I use the watch when I travel just so I can just like see the time, see the time. Um, but when I'm off the road, I just use the, the phone. It's just laziness. Um, I, I live very utilitarian here because basically I'm just counting down the days before I leave again. Because a lot of my work happens out in the world location like a film or a tv show or just touring or traveling uh last year uh heidi said something funny she said you're driving me crazy at the office like pacing and huffing and puffing like a wild animal she said um i'm gonna book you a trip and you can't know where you're going to the day you leave i'm just gonna get you out of here for 10 days because i you're driving me crazy i will kill you so i said book it and so I said, all I need is the right electrical plug and the basic temperature range so I know how to pack. She gave it to me, and I picked the itinerary up, got in the car to go to the airport. This nice lady takes me to the airport. She goes, where are we going today, hon? I said, let's see where the boss is sending me. I said, I'm going to Lima, Peru. And so I, I, I was in Lima and Cusco for a week working on my book manuscript and walking the streets up in the Peruvian Andes up in Cusco. And so I, a lot of my life happens out in the world. So when I'm here, I'm just editing and prepping to get out of here. And so a car, low maintenance, clothes, low maintenance. Inconspicuous. Yeah, I, 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 try, to I try not yeah. to have anything on the shirt. I'd love mm -hmm. to have a, a Listen to Black Sabbath t-shirt on. I'd wear right. that one every day. I love that shirt. But I'm always trying to slip through 
crowds and just head down, yeah. and just blank clothes. That's a you have a very interesting philosophy, and like I said, your work ethic and your it's very inspiring because it it makes me want to work more. It really does. When I talk to you and I listen, well, I to you think talk, you get plenty done, sir. I know I do, but that's one of the reasons why I do is because I get inspired by people like yourself. Me too. I get inspired by you and, and other people. Like I love getting inspired. I I, I live. A fairly solitary life, but I have a lot of heroes. I'm a fan of bands and people. I just I dig presidents and and other people in other countries. I, I go to see bands play and they don't know, but I have all their records. I have the 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 bootlegs. I'm an uber fan of so many people, like a fraction my age. Um, it, because I need that. I need to be pumped up by other people, and it works. You put on someone's record, you're like, yeah, man, that's great. Well, he's 19. What does he know? Plays a guitar better than I'll ever. I mean, like, well, what are you talking about? Yeah. And so it can come in all kinds of ways. I meet pe amazing people when I travel. So I, I need that. Um, and the only thing good about me, in my opinion, is what I do. Like, don't be my friend. I, I, I'm, I'm no good. I, I'll help you move your house. I'll help you move uh, or paint your house. But I don't want to come to Thanksgiving dinner I, I really don't. But if you're in trouble, I'll drive from here to, to Ohio to get you out of the trouble. I'm so happy to bail you out of a jam. Um, you just don't I, want to come over for dinner. I don't want to come over for the holidays. and I Unless you're William Shackner. Yeah. Weird, right? <laughs> so what's good about me when people say, oh, I would love to hang out with you. I'm like, no. Just, you know, your books are interesting. Thank you. Let me go write them. Mm -hmm. That's the only the, the the when I'm on stage or got the books or the radio show I do on KCRW, that's my great, human greatest hits. The rest of my life, I'm just a nervous wreck trying to get somewhere on time and kick ass. And so, I, I travel for months at a time with Road Manager Ward, my road manager of many years, a top guy, fantastic guy. Uh, there's hours that go by where we don't talk. He's got a life. I, I have a life, and we sit on the bus, and hours go by, and there's no sound, except the TV, whatever's That's on. Nice. It's fine. But um, my what's good about me is what you see on stage, on the page, when I do my little radio show. The rest of it, I'm not good friend material, but I will help your ass out of a jam, like. Hey, I'm in Long Beach. Can you come bail me out of jail? It's three in the morning. I'm so ready to do that for you. Like that, That's a very unusual quality. I don't know why, what why it you, is. Why do you find... I don't know, but that doesn't bug me at all. I'm just happy to kind of be the dog with the, the, the bottle of alcohol. Barrel. Yeah, 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 <laughs> running up the hill. Because um, I'm so happy to get you out of a jam. Mm -hmm. Just, hey, come and meet the family. Please don't make me meet your family. <laughs> 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 How did you meet Joey? How'd you meet Joey Diaz? Uh, I think Heidi set that up. You'd never met him before you I did a show? I think that was via Heidi, via you. Ah. Yeah. I knew who he was, and um, he's a really lovable guy. Uh, as soon as I met him, I, I liked him just by seeing him online. But when I met him, I there's nothing not to like. He's yeah. so honest. He's full full exposure. Like, who who he is... You get it in 60 seconds. Yeah. And I think that's why people like him because there's no BS. And like, you know, there's the good, the bad of anybody. He lets you know who he is 
in the first five minutes, and you can take or leave it. Yeah. But there's no ambiguity. And I really like being around that because you can be yourself because he has shown up being himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. not holding back. That's a really good way of looking at it. You can be yourself because he is being himself. Totally. And, and he's not going to judge you on that. He's going to give you the free. He's going to be himself, but give you also the freedom to be yourself. Unlimited. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was we, we spoke for a while on his podcast, had a great time. And he's one of those guys. If he called me at three in the morning, hey, I'm in trouble. I'm in San Diego. I'm like, hold on. Give me three hours. I mean, I, I'll help you. Come and meet the family. I please <laughs> just send it's a so specific. Send a card. <laughs> That's so specific. But uh, you know, I'm just. Uh, I I don't want to come over. But I. You don't want bullshit small talk, and you got things to do, and you're obsessed. But but I'm I'm not. What I'm trying to get across is I'm not mean spirited. I'm just, just a so awkward. happy to help. Yeah. Just a little, a lot a awkward. Little, yeah. But always ready to help. But I think that this thing, the thing of that awkwardness, is the fuel. It's like we were talking about about having imposter syndrome. That I, I don't think it ever goes away. I thought one day it would gonna it would go away. I'm more comfortable meeting famous people now than I've ever been before. But I still feel full of shit. I think you always will. And everybody that I've ever talked to that's any good, they all say the same thing. Like, they all kind of feel like no one ever feels like they're anything special. And you always like. If they're oh. any good, they don't. No. And you're always ruthlessly self critical. And trying to get better. I mean, yeah. I've worked with big actors, big, big rock stars. And the big rock stars, like one big rock star once, one time said to me, I opened, he said, Is there anyone out there? I said, Uh. <laughs> Like 19,000 people, you smell the WD-40, that's how they got the last thousand people in. Are you kidding? He said, I'm always worried that no one's going to show up. I said, when has wow. that ever been your problem? He said, well, never, but... Who is you, this? Ozzy. Jesus Christ! Yeah, who's just one of my favorite people. He's just, so, he's another guy. Is anyone out he's there? honest. How many people? Hey, man, is there anyone out there, man? And I said, are you kidding? We're like in some Floridian megadome. I was there won't be anyone out there, man. No, 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 no. And he goes out there and the place goes nuts. The show is great. Of course. And I said, you worry about people don't show up. I get really depressed, man. And I went, okay. And, you know, I did the Beacon Theater once many years ago in New York. Beautiful room. Love that place. I was... I was uh, a few days later, I was at MTV doing something with like Matt Pinfield or somebody. I was living in New York and I'm leaving. And the courtesy lady, she said, hey, George Carlin is in the green room and he wants to meet you. I went, wait a minute. Dumb question. The George Carlin? Because I've been listening to that guy since I was in eighth grade. Class clown and occupation fool actually came out for me to go to the record store. They were not nice price records. They were what was on. That's how old I am. Memorized them by eighth grade, of course. And I said, George Carlin wants to meet me. Okay, walk in and there's George Carlin. He's there to promote his next HBO thing. And he's going to do like, like multiple nights at the Beacon Theater, a place I would never sell out. He's going to do a month there, whatever. And he said, hey, I'm, I said, Mr. Carlin, ah, I'm, I'm George. I'm like, wow. He said, oh, you did a book signing the other night at Tower Records. And I said, yeah. He goes, oh, man, it was so cold. I was in line for like half an hour. And finally, I got so cold, I went home. I said, you waited in line to meet me? He's like, yeah. I'm like, why don't you just walk in? Like, oh, I can't do that, man. And wow. We, and 
he said, so you just were at the beacon? I said, yeah, it was amazing. He said, did they get the jokes? I said, uh-oh, not, that's not really what I do. I said, I'm sorry, what do you mean? He goes, like, did can you get to the audience from that stage? I said, it's actually a pretty big place. It's a lot of feet to before the first row. I said, yeah. I said, you're George Carlin. I think you're going to do okay. <laughs> but he was sincerely wondering, like, yeah. is it going to be okay in there? I'm like, are you kidding? You were handcuffed with Lenny Bruce in the back of a cop car, and you're asking me if it's going to be okay? Was he handcuffed with Lenny Bruce? Yeah. It's in that great book. Uh, it's in that great book, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Lenny Bruce. Ah, I and got that, that book. It's a great read. That's yeah. a read and a half. I read it like 22 years ago. It was fantastic. Yeah, I think I read it that long ago too. Okay. I forgot about George there was Carlin. a time when the you know as as you know uh, the First Amendment was not being used in Lenny Bruce's life towards the end of his life, and that was his every stand up thing he did was about the law towards the end. And he was in uh, doing a show one night. George Carlin was there, underage, and. George said something, and they were waiting. They pounced on him, and then they went through the crowd, ID, ID, ID. Oh, come here, youngster. And they handcuffed them together. So I said, and that's how you met Lenny Bruce, right? He said, no, I had met him before. But he said, but we were literally one pair of handcuffs together, wow. just like the book. But I thought that's, he said, that's not how we met. I said, so how'd you guys meet? He said, Lenny Bruce was very sympathetic to young comics. So what we would do is like, he said, give me your best five minutes. And he would critique us. Wow. I said, is he trying to take your material? I said, no, no, no. He just, he said like, okay, leave that part out. That part sucks. Do more of that. And that first part, put it last. He would like help. Wow. And he, he said, he was great with all the young comics. He said like, give me your stuff. Okay, here's how you redo it. Make it better. I said, so you had known him before? He said, yeah. I said, because you know, Lenny Bruce to me is a real, again, a hero, an inspiration. He fought back. And um, I, I walked out of there into like, you know, the freezing, you know, East New York to take the N or the R back down to the East Village. Like I, but the fact that here's this guy, the point I'm making is Stone Cold Pro, anywhere where I sell out half the tickets, he does 20 nights there. I, I'm in, you know, you'll never get out of that shadow. And even he is saying, hey, I have a question. Yeah. And here's what I've found with all of your big actors and big, the ones, the ones I've worked with, they are obedient to the muse. They work for the art. They are so subservient to the job. It's not about, hey, I'm rich, I'm popular. It's like, damn it, I gotta make this script come to life. Right, right. And they fear it like someone on their first job. Mm. And there might've been a middle period, like in the 70s, they had their idiot phase for three years and they kind of went sideways. But man, the the big actors I've worked with are just so like, okay, this take is everything. And it's a good lesson. You're like, okay, never lose that. Yeah, because that's what you have when you're young and you're coming up and you're starting to show promise. Yep. And somewhere along the line, the, it seems like some people get into this mindset that they deserve it. Yeah. And when they deserve it, it it's a terrible thing that happens to comedians. There's huh. something that happens to comedians when they can't relate to people anymore and they stop being relevant. And by George waiting in line uh, to see you outside in the cold shows that he never really got to that place, that, that bad place. And he was probably the most prolific stand-up of all time. Because he never would do, stopped. He would do a fresh HBO hour every year. Every yep. year. He would just sit down and he would write it all. He would write it all out, and then he would just kind of fine-tune it, sort of like you were saying you do. And he would fine-tune it and performance after performance, and then put it on HBO, and then start work on the next one, and then just crank them out. 
Yeah, I was told by someone who had him at his venue in Northern California. He just sits in front of the mirror before the show and does the whole show at hyperspeed in a low voice. Wow. I, just, I, I did that on a TV show once. Me and the actors, it was one of the actors' ideas. Like, okay, everyone in my trailer. And we did the whole show at hyperspeed in a low voice, standing in a huddle. <laughs> It was really cool because we were just like in each other's face going, oh, no, right. that's funny. And we just kind of did it like this, like crazy mumbling fest right. for like 20 minutes. And we're like, okay, okay. We got it. And we went out there and yeah. did it. It was like live in front of a TV audience. And it was like, I'd never done that before. It was really cool. And apparently that's how George preps. Wow. Fascinating. That's interesting. I don't know anybody else who does that. Most people don't even look at themselves they don't stand in front of a mirror they just i don't look at myself but i do one thing that actually works i pace and i i uh i quote lincoln speeches what as a centering exercise really yeah especially his speech from uh like january 19th 1838 give me some it's a famous speech he said um when he was talking about will america ever be taken over by anywhere else and he said no the only way america is going to fall is from within so he said uh should we fear some transatlantic giant to cross the ocean and crush us at a blow never uh all the the country you know asia europe and africa with uh, their war chests combined ours with the treasures of the world are unaccepted and bonaparte as a commander could not in a trial of a thousand years so much as take a sip from the ohio river or lay a tread on the on the on the blue ridge mountains uh if suicide if destruction be our lot we uh we must uh either live through all time or die by suicide and i wow. just take chunks of that speech because it's so he's like 28 29 years of age he's so eloquent <laughs> a sentence of lincoln is worth 10 of anyone else's it's all online for free but go to the it's called the speech to the young men's lyceum or the perpetuation of our government institutions and it's like 3200 words and it's it'll be the best thing you read this week. And how's it work as a centering exercise? I don't know. I just get in the Lincoln framework where words matter to him. He's a lawyer and a politician, so he's a double bastard. Um, I was in the vault of the Lincoln Museum in Springfield a few years ago. They let me in, and they uh, pull out one of his uh, beaver skin top hats, and they they won't let me touch it. Of course, I didn't try. But the guy with the gloves pulls it out, and he said, "Do you notice?" an indentation on the right side of the brim. I said, yeah. He goes, what do you think that is? I said, let me guess. There, there's one on top and two underneath. And I looked and there was. I said, that's him doffing his cap, his hat, over and over again. To it wears out the beaver skin. He said, yeah. How do you think he wore it out? I said, he's a politician and a lawyer. So he's trying to get everyone's vote and win. So he's like, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. Because I have an office and I'm running for office. And he said, yeah, that's probably it. <laughs> and um, That's funny. They used to use but, beaver but, skin to line their hats, right? Yeah. Well, it was the outside of it. Yeah. And it's one of those famous hats you saw them in. But mm -hmm. the, the Lincoln Museum, they have one in the vault. And literally, he wore out the hide. Wow. Um, but I use Lincoln and amendments from the Constitution. Um, <laughs> The 14th is, uh, it's in like four parts or five parts. It's the top parts for we the people, the rest is legalese. And I'll, I'll do that or the Fourth Amendment, the privacy one. That's a great one. It's not 
completely in the front of my brain pan. But I carry a copy of the Constitution with me whenever I travel, and I open it like people open the Bible, and I'll just pick an amendment and read it. Really? Yeah, and I, I have uh, one of those, the Constitution for Idiot books, where like lawyers write about, here's when it was brought into law, here's why, here's what it means in layman terms. Mm -hmm. And it's never not interesting to read. It's, well, the it's, Constitution's great. It is fascinating. We think this is an experiment in self-government that these people from... 300 years ago put together it's kind of they kind of are gods to me in that they couldn't see the future maybe they couldn't see the ar-15 but jefferson and company definitely saw how easily corruptible humans are yeah you give them a little bit of power we can get a little crazy and american democracy is really all about the checks you're like you're 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 a badass, but you're not a badass as Congress. Congress we're, is going to check we're you. We're seeing that with Trump. I mean, yeah. with Trump, we're, we're essentially seeing the reason why all these checks and balances are put in place in the first place. Yeah. Because For he's guys a, like him. Yeah. Because we, a president comes from we the people. It can be you or me, potentially. And I think the framers really saw that. Like, it should be from the people. So we got to put this person in checks because he might be a failed businessman, bad reality show actor who doesn't understand. I have to read 1500 pages of stuff this weekend and have five lawyers advise me. No golf or fun for me. I'm the president. And a lot of presidents do understand before they go in like, boy, this job's going to be boring. And a lot of people are going to be mad. And in my lifetime, we, we finally have a president who really is from the people who says, uh, he looks at like, you know, here's eight folders of stuff to read. I'm like, I don't think so. Give me the cliff notes. Yeah. Like, I'll play it from the hip. Like, no. I'm going to watch Fox and Friends. You tell me what I need to know. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's not for me to sit and rip on the guy because he's not here to, to defend himself. But never in my life have I ever watched an American president and thought to myself, I could have done better in that situation. <laughs> And there's presidents I've had nothing but disagreement with, but they were way better for the job than I ever yeah. could be. I look at this guy and go like, man, you just got played. And there's something I, I, when I knew I was going to be talking to you, there's a thing I was thinking about. Because um, I, I, I heard you uh, speak many years ago about these politicians are gangster. He said like, okay, what that guy did, that's gangster. And what this guy just did, straight up gangster. It was during the Bush administration, mm -hmm. you were just, I think it was like Halliburton, all these people, yeah. the Cheney world. And you're like, that's a gangster move. That's a gangster move. I'm like, I can't disagree with anything he just said. And, and on that kind of level, I think what I never hear is that Donald Trump is a guy who gets consistently played, rolled, got rolled by his wife, who a woman I have nothing against, but she comes from a really tough part of the world. Slovenia, that's just a rough patch of real estate. She's smart and she's tough and she got out. Got to America, well, he's not much on looks, but it's a way in from the storm. So mm. he got played by his wife. He got played by Paul Manafort. He got played by Kim Jong-un. He got played like Jimi Hendrix at Monterey, <laughs> that, that particular Stratocaster by Vladimir Putin and gets played like Rachmaninoff every single day. Mm. And anyone he does high stakes business with or negotiations, he gets played, played. And, and Manafort just used him to try and, you know, get mm. out of debt. And 
all these other people, they just roll all over him. And unfortunately, his hubris is such. He's like, ha ha. Like, no, dude, you just got blown out. And like everyone around you is playing you. Well, he probably doesn't feel that way with Manafort because Manafort's on trial and he's not yet. Right. But Manafort played him because Manafort really does play in that world of oligarchs yeah. and millions of dollars and mm -hmm. laundering money. If he wrote a book, I was telling someone the other day, I said, of all these people, he should write the book because it would be a page turner. If he told the truth, it would get him killed. He'd touch the wrong doorknob right. and, and he'd get yeah. the poison because like Putin can't have him telling what he knows. He's a... A man, he probably will go to prison. Watch him have some kind of strange accident. <laughs> like, he was liquefied in the shower. Something about the water. Um, because he knows a lot, and there's a lot of people who can pay a lot of money to keep his mouth shut. Yeah, well, you know what's fascinating to me is that over the last year or two, especially from the, the Fox crew, you're seeing Vladimir Putin admired. Yep. It's very strange. That, I, was, I never thought we would see that. I was watching uh, something a couple of years ago, about a year ago, and I was like, some guy, well, he's a good Christian man, and he believes in family. I'm like, he's the butcher of Chechnya. Yeah. Uh, let's flash back to the 1960s. I'm a young boy on the weekend visit with my father. To the right of my father is a wall. There's nothing to the right of my father, just nothing. And um, if he's still with us, uh, he'd be in his 90s and hard as a rock, just like nothing. He's a, a bar of hickory. <laughs> anyway, um, he's an economist. He's a numbers guy and a PhD, real smart. I'm coming home to my mom's apartment from the Saturday-Sunday visit with dad. We're in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm a little boy, five years old, somewhere around there, very small. Economist and communist. I don't know what either of them are, arguably, to a five-year-old. Kind of sounds the same. I'm in the big Buick station wagon on to my father's right. We're pulling up to mom's apartment. Henry, dad, are you a communist? I don't think my father's facial expression changed. His right hand came off the wheel and his backhand collided with my head. It was just like, I hear the word communist, a boy gets smacked. And it was without hatred or violence. It was like national security. <laughs> like, whack! He didn't even know he did it. It was Jeez. like a sneeze. Like, kapow! And it hurt so much, my head went numb. And it was not even the pain. It was like the shock of a, your dad whacking you. With, with You had no idea what you did. And all I could do was hyperventilate and he opened the door and he let me out he didn't say a word he didn't tell you that there's a difference between a communist and an economist no sir so i left the like, <laughs> like for like till i was like 33 you what know it, well, you know what i mean because it, it's so destabilizing uh, like your dad right. just walloped you and i get out of the elevator i go into the apartment <laughs> but yeah. i did that till i was like you know till two years ago it was totally and I, she said honey what happened i said i asked dad if he was a comic she's like okay <laughs> so the point i'm making is this there's a bunch of people who voted for trump where you say russia they say Bunch of sons of bitches, trust them as far as you can throw your car. Are you kidding? And when I see staunch conservative Republicans going, well, that Putin guy, I'm like, are you kidding? 
People like my dad's heads are exploding. He's an old Cold War guy. We would wash uh, Boris and Natasha, whatever that cartoon yeah, was. Yeah, Bullwinkle. Yeah, as a kid, mm -hmm. I'm laughing because the guy was, ah! My dad's laughing on a whole other level because it's Cold War funnies. It was written for the parents. Right. So the kids get the cartoon. The parents got the jokes. That was for adults with their kids on Saturday. You watch them later on. You're like, oh, this is Cold War humor. I wouldn't have known. That's my dad's world. You say Russia. He'd probably hate my guts because I've been there six times for shows. Mm. And they take the Trans-Siberian Express. And so this warming up to a guy who is a true bad guy. He's scary. There's bodies buried because of him. He's one of the scariest guys on the planet. And, and capably violent and will have you taken out. I mean, like Anna Politkovskaya, one of the greatest journalists of our time. She was critical of Putin and she got assassinated in her apartment building. Her books are great. Her books from Chechnya are amazing. And like she, he was, she was critical of him and she had to go. And when you see our president cozying up to this guy, I just want to go, bro, Let's talk. Like, let's take a walk in the garden for 20 minutes. You can't be friends with this guy. My theory is he, he there, there, there's, there's some kind of finances where he's, he's got to stick up for him. I don't think it's a, a tape of people urinating on anyone. I think it's that just money. That would be too cliche. Too interesting. Um, <laughs> it, it, it be, it's, it's, a, it's a money thing. It's yeah. a hotel deal. Right. It's money right. sitting in Cyprus. It's something. Mm. But the fact that we're be, becoming okay with this guy... That is the part that bugs me the most and why people in Congress or a guy like Sean Hannity, mm -hmm. who like probably likes communists as much as my dad, even me, I don't trust people like that at all. Putin is a criminal, should be in jail for a million billion years. And the fact like, hey, he's a like when, when he's Trump, a strong leader, he, he he's hey, he's a human being. We can talk like gosh, he's an ex KGB guy who and there's no such thing as an ex KGB guy. Right. Yeah. They're KGB for life. Yeah. For life. And he's a supreme operative. And what he does is he he rolls people like you, dude. And like, God, you are a guppy. He's a shark. Like, no, two guys hanging out. No, one guy getting played and one guy playing someone. I think he admires the fact that Putin's able to run his country the way he does, too. Yes, and that's why he likes Duterte and Un. And I've been to... Well, that's what he said about Un. He said he's a strong head. And he I've, goes, I've he been to all those countries. I've been his... to the Philippines. I've been to yeah. North Korea. They're tough places to live. And, like, you don't want your country looking like those places. You don't want America to be like Russia. It, the economy is destroyed. And there's a lot of people, like in the wintertime, it's really tough. How do you think this plays out? Homeless. Do you think he goes to jail? No. No, because uh, I don't believe in karma. <laughs> uh, karma. Here's my two words that disprove karma. Dick Cheney. <laughs> he's got a new heart. And a new heart. He has no <laughs> See, pulse, which is perfect. Well, he's got a pulse now with a new heart. Okay, because I the machine, he had I knew no he had pulse. the machine, and yeah. the, he just heard a, a whoosh, yeah. which is like, what's perfect for him. Yeah. Like, it's but, in the um, Bible. He may very well live, because he looks like he's watching his weight now. He's like looking lean. He might live to be like 105. Um, and so he'll never go to jail. And, and like how many millions does he make a year just from his dividends from whatever? Like, who knows what you do with that kind of money? Right. I don't know what you do with it. And so I don't think he goes to jail. I don't think Jared Kushner goes to jail. I think at most they leave, like maybe next year, and they go like, I drained the swamp, I did what I came here to do, and the fake news media brought me down, and all his people 
buy one of everything he makes forever. Steak, I, vodka. I, I think it's possible that Donald Trump Jr. goes to jail. It's very possible. They're talking about perjury charges against him now because his own dad admitted on Twitter. Yes. Yeah. No, I follow all that stuff as you yeah. do. I just don't think white-collar guys go to prison for stuff. I just don't believe it. Mm. You know, I just don't believe it. I want to be proven wrong. But I don't have all the facts. I'm a, I'm a news watcher. I know nothing. I don't get any classified briefs. So I only know what I read and what I hear. Do you talk about any of this stuff in your stage act? A little bit. But knowing my audience, they're very sharp and they read. They're readers. And they don't need me repeating what they Things know they back to know. them. Right. And so. Well, good for you for that. If I make a point, as my dad used to say, you want to score, hit them where they ain't. The mm -hmm. baseball idea and so if i can make a point like if i was on stage tonight talking about trump i would roll out that idea of trump as a guy who's been played by so many people around him and no one talks about his wife playing him like there's no love in that marriage i don't think she saw a way out came to new york and went that guy yeah gets naked with the toad a few nights a month <laughs> handful of a handful of prozac some stoli and a credit card and a seven-figure expense account, you can yeah. take a shower and make it go away. Yeah. Um, so I, I think he, and I think he kind of knows that, you know, she was not like, wow, what a hot guy. She's like, right. hey, and there's, you know, that happens a lot in this town. You'll mm -hmm. see that, you know, the couple, and you're like, okay, yeah, right. <laughs> well, Harvey Weinstein, before his, uh, before his wife left him, Harvey Weinstein's wife was beautiful. Well, yeah, but you see that a lot in this town yeah. where you see the the old weird dude with like the the eight year old girlfriend. You're like, oh yeah, that's a that's a setup. That's an agency. That's mm -hmm. an agreement. Yeah. That's a, someone's getting a salary or an implied. You know, it's it's a there's some kind of quid pro quo. There's mm -hmm. a credit card. Sure. There's an expense account, or there's just a a big fist full of hundreds, and just let me chew on you for the next four weeks. <laughs> You know what I mean? Or whatever the agreement is. Uh, right. And, and I, uh, so if I was going to say anything about Donald Trump on stage, it would be, he sucks. And I, I never talk about any problem on stage. And I learned this from, of all people, President Clinton. Because some of his later speeches post-presidency, I'm not a huge fan of the guy, but he's a good speaker. And he did some speeches in the UK a few years ago, and I happened to be in, in England when he was there, and I watched him on TV. The last part of his speech, the last 10 minutes was, here's a problem, here's three solutions. Here's another problem, here's three solutions. We're like, for, for $60 million, we could put internet through this thing, or we could open this waterway, or we could reconfigure this workforce to upgrade so everyone can get a paycheck. He just had logical ways forward. So what I took from that is, to my audience, don't propose a problem. Well, he sucks. Thanks. Good night. Right. Don't give him a Gordian knot unless right. you can go, actually, it's not a Gordian knot. Here's three ways to get out of this burning mm. wreck. And so like when, when Trump became elected, it was I was on tour. I was doing a bunch of nights in L.A. And I said, okay, you have a new president and some of you are depressed. Mm. I said, I know. And so gay people are on the endangered species list as, as if they've never been. Um, brown people, black people, women people, people with ovaries, these are all on the your screwed list. So instead of being coming depressed and oh no, let's we get up, we start doing more benefits. Now all your words matter, your actions matter, how you stick up for your LGBT friends really matters now. How you stick up for women, how you stick up for racial equality, equality in the workplace. 
like uh, how you check yourself when you voulez-vous with other people. Words matter, actions matter more than ever. And so to me, it's an exciting time to show how great you can be because now it's all on the line. The fat is off the land. We're being tested. I love a test, so let's get it on. It's like uh, in your line of work when the guy goes, here we go. Yeah. That's how I saw it. Like, okay, let's, re- let's get the money to the ACLU. Let's get some money to Planned Parenthood. Let's get a conversation going about uh, child suicide, intimidation through Facebook. Let's start making things better because this guy is not our ally. Government's not necessarily going to help. At its best, it's inactive. At its worst, it's divisive and predatory. So let's be the antidote by being cool, by not throwing rocks through windows or like you getting a guy with a tiki torch and beating him up. Come on. Um, you're never going to convince that guy that he's wrong. So get to the people you agree with and let's start sticking together more and raising more money and get some more interesting people in office. Let's get some young people in office. And I think that's what's happening. Like you're seeing all these young people, like 20s, 30s. Sadly, there's a bunch of kids who died at a high school in Florida. But look what happened. Look at all those kids hitting the streets. Look at all these kids who threw cell phones and selfies and Instagram and Snapchat. They're already ready for prime time. You see these high school juniors in front of a CNN camera going, hi, I'm 17 years old. This happened to my school. And next year I'm going to vote. And here's what's going to happen. And here's the march I'm starting. Like, uh oh, that's a future senator. You just that school shooting just birthed a voting demographic. Are you kidding? All those kids are going to vote. All of them. All those kids who marched, there's going to be no millennial apathy with those kids. They're all going to vote. I kind of have an idea what side they're going to vote with. And if you think you're going to sell those kids on their grandfather's drunken homophobia, racism, and just overall bigotry and xenophobia, you're wrong. He never had a passport. I don't need to travel. I don't want to meet some damn Mexican. Trust me, the kid's going to travel. He's going to go to India. She's going to go to Colombia and meet other people and get a more global sense of the world, a sense of water, food, energy, where it comes from, where what happens with money, what happens with mediocrity, the danger of it. So I think we're in for some tough times, but I think they're going to lead to good times. And so that's if I get political on stage, all I say is like, here's five ways forward, because the despair part you like, you need me to tell you, you watch the news. So don't get down in the mouth, start burning more calories. And, that, and that's not my job, but I would never weigh in on stage any other way about that stuff because all I would be is obvious. And my audience is pretty sharp and they don't need to be told twice. Outstanding. Thank you, sir. Well said. I couldn't agree more. Friday night. Showtime, August 10th. Henry motherfucking Rollins. Keep talking. Keep talking, pal. Pal. Keep talking, pal. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Thanks. That was great.